0: Yeah, I, just, I would have thought we would have had follow-up from last week.
1: Apparently we were right on.
0: Either that or we were so far off, no one even bothered. <laughs> there was even there was not much comment on my uh, lecture on domain-driven design and triggered and software architecture. Like, very little follow-up on that. Which is weird well, because I, there was so much lead-up to it.
1: Well, I, don't want, I wouldn't say there was no follow-up. I mean, on on the, on our Slack community, there was definitely a increase or spike in talk of books and patterns and things like that to, in in fact, people created a, um, uh, a book list, a book list. Yeah. Yeah, There was actually two of them. Where is that? Yeah. They consolidated that. They did into what? I think into a Google sheet. We should add that to the
0: show notes. Yes, absolutely. I'll make a list note of that. Add book list to show notes. Where, was that in like a Google Doc somewhere? Yeah, that's good. Um, somebody I mean, I sent in, it's Titled a
1: book, a list of books to read before you can work with Jeremy. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, be his friend.
0: I think it was Brent Nelson that sent in. He actually sent in um a, a link to. This is a follow up on my hosting multi part form data. A file to Salesforce, mm-hmm. and your options for actually being able to extract that from the HTTP body and doing something with it. Right. And he sent in a link to um, someone's blog post that talks about using JavaScript remoting to do that. And basically, I, I guess there's a way you can get it to essentially, I guess call. It's almost like calling a method.
1: Well, it is, but you have to be on Salesforce to do that. That's the way remote it why don't to be on Salesforce?
0: You can't. You can't make the page available in a site and have it be callable from the web. Uh,
1: then you'd have to do a Git, I guess.
0: See, this is, and that's why I think the, it goes back to that problem. Like you still, in order for Visual Force, you still have to do the initial Git. Yeah. To say that you have view state and your CSRF right. token, right? Right. And so, I still think that doesn't work. It also has some weird limitations. Like the way the way that they did this was they set up a A remoting method that accepted a string, which was you know basically the base sixty four encoded file body, Mm. and so you receive that in a string parameter, and then in Salesforce you have to then decode that and save it as like an attachment or whatever.
1: Oh, that makes sense.
0: But there's some I could see that working. Uh, Yeah, there's some limitations to that. I mean, one is that I think I guess the maximum string size in Apex or something is six million.
1: Well that that, that only works if you have if whatever is calling your page is able to intercept that file, encode it, send it as a string and post it to that. What you were trying to do is not possible because you were going directly from the browser and browser security won't let you touch that file. Yeah, it really doesn't, right? Right. <clears throat> I mean, you can, well see, I don't know with the
0: with some of the newer APIs, you can I mean there's things you can actually you can. But I I didn't want to have to mess with that. I wanted to, I wanted to stick to kind of how the way the web works and how the way that any but well, it's any, more how
1: browsers work exactly. They're the ones restricting us. Yeah, that is our internet platform. Yeah. <laughs> so this was, I mean, this was
0: a clever workaround, but just for me, it <laughs> it, it still was it wouldn't have worked. But it, it had some limitations. So six so six million bytes is the biggest string. That means that you're, I guess, after encoding, you're, you're basically your max. File size is about four meg, which in this application actually might have been okay. But I, I don't know. That's a that's a pretty small limit. Um, but just the fact that it, I think it still was in Visual Force would have caused me problems, just because of the uh, having to initialize the Visual Force view state first. Right. But anyway, yeah. Thanks for sending that in, Brent. Brett, sorry. Um. What else? Craig sent in a, this is Craig, I'm, I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name, but Donisthorpe, that's how I always say it, Donisthorpe.
1: <laughs>
0: that's how I say it too. <laughs> um, it, was, it was a pretty good article, actually. It was, you know, how, uh, how terrible code gets written by perfectly sane people. I saw that. That was, that was actually a pretty good read. It was, yeah. Um, but, you know, I thought we could just go through, the, I guess, the high points of it. It's definitely worth a read, though. Um, the first one was Giving Excessive Importance to Estimates. And I, it's really, if you dig into it, it's, it's, it's more than that. It's about, I think it's more, it's really more about when management starts bullying developers and to give estimates that they want to hear. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, you know, the guy talks about how that gives you, that gives developers basically two choices. They can either overestimate things so they cut, right. Or they can overpromise Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. No, it makes sense. That happens even today. Yeah. <laughs> with, with just estimating projects for clients and everything.
0: Um, so another another thing is giving no importance to project knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, there's different aspects to that. I think a lot of it is just how to manage teams, um, how to hire. In fact, I think that's the last thing. That last point it has is, you know, you've just got to hire well. But it's also it's understanding that you know people really, especially in in this knowledge work, people are snowflakes, and you can't just oh we lost a senior developer too. Well, let's replace them with a senior developer too. And the problem is that guy just walks with all this project knowledge,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and also I wish I could remember who this was. Someone wrote up something really interesting on on um, how they really focus at this company on on t- building productive teams because. Teams are composed of specific people, and once you get a team that clicks really well together, like you should really try to.
1: Oh, well, that was that was in that book you had me read. Um, people were, people were, yeah. I'm
0: sure they talk about that.
1: I no, talked about saw, it a lot. I, yeah, right. I, I, I highlighted a number of passages from that. On that,
0: I just saw something more recent where they it was a, a company they were they were talking about how they well, he do that. Plagiarized. He people. might have. I mean, again, <laughs> these aren't you know, of these aren't. Aren't necessarily new ideas, but it's definitely worth reiterating and revisiting these yeah, and reminding people. And, you know, for people that are that are younger or newer in this business, just you know, making sure people understand these things. But yeah. yeah, once you have a, you know, a team that's working well, you know, it's just try to understand why that is and, and the dynamics. And um, I remember there was one example. This might have been from people where actually where I think it was. But they had a really uh, a team that was functioning really well. And after a while, it, it stopped functioning as well, and they couldn't figure out why. And they they looked at who had left the team, right. and it turns out you know it was a person that left the team, but it was a person that you know no one thought was very productive. They didn't have as many story points and you know, or whatever whatever the you know metric was. And it turns out it's just one of these people that can it just helps a team gel. I think I yeah. think is the is the way they phrased it. Um, it's a team that or it's a per- type of person that can just get people to to work together well. That can translate things and. And just help the team in all these little subtle ways right. that aren't going to show up on anyone's. Yeah, they're not going to show. They're up not going to show up on, on an annual review. Yeah, they're not. But it turns out someone like that can be worth gold.
1: Yeah, and, and in fact, their their output isn't isn't tangible at all. It's there's nothing tangible. There's no end product out of what they do. But they were extremely significant in making sure everyone else was able to do what they they needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was definitely one of those passages that I highlighted heavily because I I thought that was really key. Yeah, he says, you know, if you're in a, if you're, back to this article, if you're in a large
0: project and there are entire modules for which, like, no one's an expert and there's no one around to ask about it, it's a big red flag. Kind of seems obvious. Um, Another point is, a mediocre developer is going to do a better job at rewriting something he wrote himself, and he'll do it faster than if you give the job to someone else entirely. I'm not really sure what his point is there.
1: I don't know. Maybe it's just, you know, one of those things where if, if something is, not as efficient as it could be, you know. Handing it off to someone who you think is more senior to that person to do it better might not, might not result in something being done fast, faster, or yeah. even
0: better. But it's the final thing is, you know, if you don't hire well, you're gonna, you're gonna, you'll get tied up to a bad team that will go nowhere for months. That's why I always when I when I talk to um, companies that I work with or just people that are asking me for advice, I always say, you know, it's all about hiring. I mean, you're really looking for. You're looking for the ten, you know, the top ten percent of people. That's what. That's who you want to hire. You're, it's going to give you competitive advantage. That's what's. That's what's going to separate you from competitors. That's what's going to make the difference between failure and success.
1: <clears throat> yeah, but I. I, I
0: and that's they're, I they're not necessarily like all that more expensive either. That's that's the interesting part about it.
1: Yeah, but I don't I don't think you can just kind of plug in someone who's at the top 10 percent into your project and think it's just going to go great. I I think it's 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 more than just that one person. It's the entire team. It's it's the people understanding, you know, what needs to be built and, you know, maybe not necessarily understanding how it needs to be built, but understanding at least the requirements, the the end result, the goal, Um, someone who can help everyone gel and achieve that goal. I mean, just just having someone who's a top notch developer on your team isn't going to make anything successful.
0: Mm. that's that's an awful blanket statement there It certainly could help I mean adding A players to projects definitely helps I think the key is you just well, you want to
1: That's assume, so you're assuming it, okay if you got one if you got a product you're going to build and you have one developer and he's responsible for everything from end to end I didn't say that I'm just saying then maybe that one person being as you know top 1% will help you be successful but in most things it's it's a team it's a collaboration you have all these different requirements coming from different places you have competing requirements you need someone to kind of help Discuss and and analyze this and and arch, help architect the system. You can't expect that one guy to do it all.
0: No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect that. And that's, that's In what, fact, the problem is the problem you're going to have is that one guy is going to quit.
1: And That's what I'm saying. I mean, you have to have a good team. It's not just hiring that that and that's that's what's going to be hard no, about it's it. No, it's not. Hire... about
0: hiring one a good a player. It's about hiring a bunch of good a players. A but bunch of a, what's a players. What's the likelihood
1: of you hiring? Let's say you need five people for your team. Yeah. What's what's the likelihood that you're going to get all five people from that town? Tep- Top ten percent tier.
0: Well, I can guarantee you this: if you don't know how to hire, your 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 probability is zero.
1: Okay, given that. Okay, let, but let's say you are able to hire like one or two. Now you got. Well, first of all, you can't rapid hire there because they're not available. They're not that available. True. It takes time to build up
0: those that type of people, that type of organization. Hmm. And if your organization doesn't value the right things, you're not going to get those people. You won't even. You wouldn't know if they landed in your lap. You wouldn't even be able to recognize someone as an A player. Well that's true if but if you don't but, have the right values and if you what, don't know how to hire
1: A players are subjective though I mean it's subjective to what you need
0: You need A players <laughs> I know you're trying to make this more complicated than what it is but no I'm you not. just you need you need you're looking for the top people
1: Well it is more complicated than that it's it's not if it wasn't complicated then then it'd be easy It's not easy You'd go to your A you go to the whatever Salesforce A list and go okay let's see let's pick him him and him Come on, guys, let's go. Let's go build something. Right. That's not how it works. No. It's more complicated than that. It is. Sometimes you may get, you know, number 1 on that list, but now now you're you're done. You're you're next in line in draft, you have to pick from the well, B you, list, next you in also, line in the draft, you have to pick right. one from the C but list. But you also
0: need to know when to pass. When it just it's it's when it's just better to, if you can't find the type of person you're looking for or someone that really kind of meets your requirements, then you should ju- you should just pass and just you need to wait. Cuz it would, if, you, if you have a team with a... You can take a properly functioning team and add one person to it that can destroy that team. Agreed. This happens. Agreed. And you can have, you know... And I and I actually... Do you believe in this, the myth of the, the 10x developer?
1: No. No, you don't. I don't even know what Should that is. Should I describe yes. that with those?
0: Okay, <laughs> so it's basically that your A player developer... Is ten times more productive than your mediocre developer on on your project. He he or she will get literally ten times more done, and and I actually believe this. And I also I I take it further. Oftentimes, your mediocre people are are of negative productivity. It'd be better to have no one in their seat than to have the wrong person in that seat.
1: I think it depends on the the product structure. A lot of times, the your what would you call it your ten your ten x developer. Often takes more of a leadership role on the project, which means they're they're involved, they're stretched, they're stretched pretty thin between developing, architecting, well, they don't always, and mentoring. Well, they don't always
0: do that. It depends on the person. Again, some people, some some incredibly good software engineers are not good. They're not good mentors, as an example.
1: True, but I, I see it happen often enough where someone who's who's at that level ends up taking on more of the responsibility. They become the senior on that project, and they're they're kind of help. They're kind of there to help. respond. Help the other people on the team do what they need to do. You know, either provide help, guidance, um, or even just understanding of the requirements. Yeah. And they're usually more plugged in with the project than they are. They're kind of more in the background with their task list, just turning through it, getting it done. Yeah. Um, from that perspective, I could see the your mediocres becoming more more productive in terms of output than say your 10x because of the different role structure.
0: But the, the mediocre can't. They, don't, they just don't have the skills. They're the, they're the, they're the nine-to-fiver, right? The, the person that doesn't know a, you know a pattern from a profile from anything. It's like, you know, but they've got, um, you know,
1: their resume had the right buzzwords. Well, maybe the terminology is what's messing me up here okay. because I look at a product structure and I, I, you see the levels. You see someone who's more senior, has a lot more experience, and then you have others who are, who are less experienced but can do the job. What? And the, the team dynamic happens that way just because you can't oh you can't there's not that many 10x developers out yeah. there and so you build this team as best you can and you hope that it gels and you hope that that whatever skill sets they lack or have complement each other and that it somehow gels and you're able to to be productive. It's not it's not ideal to say that all my products are going to have five 10x people on it. It's not ideal. It's not realistic. I should say. It is ideal, it's not realistic. I mean there
0: are there are companies that basically hired nothing but A people.
1: And congratulations to yeah. to Google and Apple and
0: it, but you know what? <laughs> but they they know how to hire. And, and
1: they and, also and it, have
0: the money to hire. That's the funny thing. They actually don't overpay. In fact, some of those get to underpay because they're they're such prestigious employers. They don't have to pay what a boring job, a boring company is going to have to pay. A boring company is going to have to pay you more to get you to go work there. If you got a, if you got a boring job and cool job, and they're both offering
1: the same salary, which one are you going to go to? Right. I guess that does factor into it, but I don't I don't know how much that factors factors into it. If I if for me, if I was going to a smaller company versus Google, yeah, Google would be really attractive because it's Google, and but they're only going to pay me X Y Z, and this is a smaller company. I'll have much more of an impact than I will at Google because I'll just be another face in the crowd at Google because they're so big and they don't Not necessarily they, they don't have, to have me.
0: Plenty of famous people that work at Google that. Make make a massive name for themselves by working at Google, that's but true. okay,
1: <laughs> but okay. So maybe I think it depends on your career path. It does. If, if you want to go to Google and make a name for yourself and say I worked at Google and I was senior, blah blah blah, and that's a stepping stone to get to somewhere higher, then then awesome. Yeah, go that route. But right. I, I think I see the smaller companies where I can have a bigger impact, and they're willing to pay for that or able to pay for that. That that seems more attractive to me than, than a Google.
0: That and that's that's a personal thing that's up to you. I'm, I'm just saying that less interesting jobs in general, have to pay more to get you because it's a less interesting job.
1: I don't know. I don't know that... I guess it depends on what interesting interesting means. If it's to maintain an already built crappy piece of software, that's not very interesting.
0: Exactly. And it could be any number of things. That but are if just, it's to di- take
1: this old crappy legacy system and, and you know modernize it, that could be interesting. Exactly. And they wouldn't have to pay you as much. You're. you're <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying,
0: if it's less interesting... Uh I'm not talking about if it's more interesting. I'm saying if it's less (laughs) interesting, they're going to have to pay you more to go work there. Otherwise, you're not going to do it. I guess that's true. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. You don't have to argue with that. It just is what it is. That's a pretty self-evident fact. Which is why some of these prestigious tech companies don't have to pay as much. Some of them. Some of them. All right. Let's move on. Uh, Focusing on poor metrics such as issues closed or commits per day. That's you still see that all the time, sadly, or um, no, you know number of lines of code, which is I, I uh, see that hilarious. more as, as
1: more from traditional software shops. You know, measuring by lines of code and things like that. I, yeah. I, I think these days, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't see that. At least I don't see that in the world we live in—the Salesforce world, the web application world, the framework world. It, lines of code don't seem to matter as much as they used to. Yeah.
0: It takes a lot of self-control to focus on delivered quality and ignore juicy metrics such as commit rate or issues closed. Yes, it does. Um, another one, good uh, assuming that good process fixes bad people. Th- this is uh, this is one of my
1: You know that's, that's something that's easy to fall into because you let's go back to the scenario that I, that I painted earlier, which is you have your your senior developer and then you've got your other developers who aren't as experienced, and they keep screwing up. They yep. keep messing up. Yep. They're not doing things the way you want them to do it. So you you put some guidelines in place, and they you, still don't do it. So then you start then you start micromanaging it, or you you put a system in front of them to say you have to do you have to log this this and this to get it done. I I can see how that snowballs and happens unintentionally.
0: Yep. And I and I look back and I mean some of the best teams that I've worked on we ended up with very little process because we just didn't need very much process. Yeah.
1: And that, that's a joy. That's, it really that, is. That, that's a no, rarity it's, and it's a joy to work in that environment where, uh, yeah, I know we should be doing this and I know we should log that, but you know what? We're okay. I We're know. doing great.
0: And you have to enjoy those when you get them because they also don't last forever. Yeah. So, uh, Let's see. Yeah, talent makes up for any other inefficiency in your team. That's the entire point of favoring smart work over hard work. There's there's really no there's really no substitute for getting the right people.
1: Yeah, I think I think talent is is a is a good key word because uh, you know you can look at someone's resume and you can see that all the all the boxes are checked correctly and and you know it sounds like a good story. But I, I see it as a difference between book smarts and street smarts. And I don't know if that makes sense, but but I think there's a lot of people out there who just have a certain talent and a certain. What's what's an analogy for talent? I don't know. They they just have a talent for it. They have a talent for the work. They have a talent for what they do and how they do it and how their brain works and how their brain processes this information and outputs something that's somewhat creative solution to a problem. Well, that to me is talent.
0: Well, we know that book smarts are not necessary. I've never really read a book on computer science.
1: <laughs> you don't need it. Well, I'm not I'm not to, to I'm not to downgrade you know book smarts or anything like that or, or studying or learning or degrees or anything like that. All I'm saying is that. You know, experience accounts for a lot. Talent and experience does account for a lot, and and it could mean the success or failure. Just because someone looks and sounds good on paper, has all the right certifications, has all the right diplomas from the right schools, doesn't necessarily seem they're they're going to be your best developer. Yeah, talent
0: resumes are almost useless nowadays.
1: Bill Gates didn't finish his degree. Oh yeah, yeah, he
0: didn't. Yeah. Um, who else didn't? Uh, Michael Dell. Michael Dell. I don't think Larry Elson did.
1: Yeah. Uh, what about uh, Mister Spaceman uh, Tesla guy? Elon. Elon. I don't know. I don't know if he did. I mean, he he hit it big in the dot com days. Oh yeah, he was what? Pay PayPal think or so. eBay? Uh, I think PayPal. I think.
0: Um, and then the final topics on this one, you know, ignoring proven practices such as code reviews and unit testing. Um. Yeah. I mean, hmm. I'm not sure if I would on a lot of the specifics, I would necessarily agree. You know, unit testing is still actually it's I feel like the controversy of controversy of unit testing has come back. That's a lot so. just a lot more people saying that um, they don't think unit testing is worth it. Of course, you really have to drill down and find out what people mean when they say unit testing, because that's still that's still a term that people have different meanings for. Um, but I heard, I think it was Ward Cunningham, actually, this is a while back, I wish I actually i, I went back and tried to find this talk, or I don't know if it was a, a conference talk or a podcast where I heard him say this, but he was talking about how he just really doesn't do unit testing anymore. He just does um, end-to-end testing. So, just sets up, you know, if it's a web app, things to hit the endpoints end and make sure they, you get the right results back and all that. Hmm. But all the all the other unit testing and stuff, he just doesn't do. Um.
1: yeah code but reviews he's I mean, still kind of he's still unit testing by by hitting those endpoints and validating the output he may not be getting drilling into it in granularity but he's still well, that's it's not a high a, level that's not a unit test
0: oh uh, okay that's what I mean you kind of have to make sure people understand what unit test is before you can even talk about that but that's but that's about as far from a unit test as you can get I mean that is a, that is a functional test slash end to end test I mean, in my mind, like the three, and there's different names for these, whatever, but the three big categories are, you know, unit tests, integration tests, and then functional tests. Mm-hmm. Functional tests, some people call end-to-end tests, whatever. But yeah, I mean, unit tests is your, your and in most most programming languages, um, a unit test is going to be you're testing a single class.
1: Mm-hmm. Or not, no, you could test a single method.
0: Well, yeah, you're right. Um, but you're you you are excluding you are you are uh, not wanting to test that class's interaction with other classes right that's integration tests right um, so in order to unit test then you ha- then that gets into you know mocking and stubs and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff which which when unit testing really was kind of i feel like at its heyday shortly after that became came the backlash against all the mocking People would see, you know, every single unit test has got this massive mocking setup, but that that's the thing. When you're, you know, in normal, typical object-oriented code, you know, any class is going to get all these things, collaborators passed, and then it's got to use to get a job. In a, in a unit test, if you're going to truly unit test, then you've got to somehow mock those out. Mm-hmm. So, the people that were saying, oh yeah, I like unit testing, but boy, I, I, you know, this mocking stuff's out of control, but well, what do you suggest?
1: And that's just, I've never understood the answer to that. Um, the answer is given, or just the the question itself? No, no. I mean, if how can you say that? Oh yeah, unit test is great. I
0: love I love unit testing. Um, but but I really don't like I don't like doing all the mocking. I don't do I don't do the mocking. Well, what do you do? What are you doing then? That makes me wonder whether you're really unit testing.
1: Well, if if you're testing, you know the your methods that maybe maybe not don't rely on a data source. Then you're, you're you're not having to to set up a bunch of mocks for that. Sure, you're having to, to mock up the inputs, but it's not as well. Let's say you're testing a class that's like some kind of cap, you know, uh, balance account and balance calculator.
0: Mm-hmm. And in order for it to do its job, it's it gets passed into it like policy, some kind of policies that determine how things are added up or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you're either going to use a real instance of that policy class, or you're going to have to mock it out. Because this thing's got to have that policy, order, some kind of policy. I mean, it's going to use a policy to do
1: its job. And I, I think, from my perspective, I enjoy unit testing when I'm testing something very specific—a a method that's calculating, you know, some numbers. Maybe it's dividing a number, and I pass in two variables, and I, I, I create a few scenarios, and I test that. I don't need to mock. that. Do you think you ever do unit testing in the Salesforce world? No. Except, I, yeah, I don't. I really don't either. Well, there are small occasions where my my code is granular enough that I I am doing. For unit testing, there's 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 no impact. There's no CRUD operations. Yeah. At that point, I feel like I'm not doing unit testing.
0: In in order to do historically, in order to do actual, you know, unit testing in Salesforce, um, you would basically have to for everything that your classes could collaborate with, you've got to you've got to be working with uh, not concrete implementations, but either interfaces or abstract classes for all of those. So now you're gonna you know you're gonna interface. It, Abstract class the hell out of your whole system, which we already have the the global namespace problem. Now you've just made that four times worse,
1: mm-hmm.
0: because now you've got interface files and abstract files, and then the, all the the various implementations of them. Yep. But you and that's even a that's one of the solid principles, right? Um, isn't it? Uh, you depend depend on abstractions, not concrete
1: implementations. Yeah, but you can't do that with Salesforce. <laughs> I didn't mean to sound like that soundbite. <laughs> Because you you have you have workflow and other mechanisms inside of Salesforce that you can't mock, you can't hope to mock. Well, um, well, yeah, but if you're doing unit tests, it's not it's not hitting the database, so workflows aren't even going to get fired. I know, but then you're not truly validating. Anything.
0: That's a functional test, John. See, this is where <laughs> this is where people, everybody gets so confused, and it's but anyway in salesforce so so th- that's what you would have had to do is interfaces for everything and ha- any given any class you have relies has references only to interfaces right. even data interfaces so basically except at some low data layer level all of your classes are going to have instances of some kind of you know data access interface. Mm-hmm. No, there's no direct calling to update or database.update or anything or database.insert. You can't do that.
1: Right.
0: Um and and then you have the problem of basically like dependency injection. So now you've got every class that does anything now has it has its collaborators collaborators provided to it. Well you okay you got one of two things. Either look you can have like service lookups. So every class just goes to like a a singleton to say get me a Get me an instance of the account summary policy, right? Right, um, and so you know something that set up something that initialized the environment, set inst- inst- instantiated all these singletons and provided them with the concrete implementations. And so your class now decides to say, "Hey, get me an instance of this certain interface," and you get it, right? Mm-hmm. That's one way. Or the dependency injection. You know, every, something instantiates all these objects in the right order and then provides them all their dependencies, right? And obviously, either I mean the service locator is probably a better way because I, I don't I haven't seen any good implementation of a dependency injection uh, service in the Salesforce Apex land. Um, so I think you'd probably I think you're probably stuck with with uh, singletons at this point, or some kind of service locator pattern, right? But that's just I mean just for Salesforce, given that you know you don't have namespaces and that would you'd really end up with a lot more classes at that point. I mean it's just i i see very few people doing that i've i've got, i mean i've got projects i've done that before and i look back like when i've gone to do updates to them or fixes or whatever i'm like oh, i'm not sure this was i'm not sure this is worth it yeah i mean yes i did unit tests i mean true unit tests but i mean i can tell you i've really gone back to i'm on the i'm on i'm back on the ward cunningham side of the spectrum now where i'm like i am doing i'm doing end to end tests so for example i'll set up i do i do use like repository classes to access data and you know I've got you know business slash domain classes that do things, and then I'll put you know Visual Force controllers or REST endpoints mm-hmm. that call into those things. But and I, that's what I'll test. So I'll test to make sure the Visual Force controller that when it's you know its getters and setters are doing what they're supposed to do. And I, I'll I will look in the database to see if it did what it was supposed to do, or I'll call a getter and make sure that it where, however it got stuff from the database that it got the right thing back out to the page. And I'll test my REST endpoints the same way, and as long as those are doing what they're supposed to do. I'm not going to write a bunch of unit tests, and I, I, I'm still got I've got great coverage. I'm covered. I've covered everything, and I've got end to end tests to show that it's you put a value in, you get the right value back out. Mm-hmm. That's all the, the client cares about. I mean, that's that's what anyone cares about. Now the question is, people, you know, the the, the pro unit test people will say like, well, yeah, that you know, there's when 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 things do go wrong, it's not, you're not going to be pointed to a specific place, whereas in a unit test you would be. Which, which can be true in some cases, but also in, you know if you have tons of unit test coverage, um, one little change can like cause 150 unit tests to break because you've got all this granular coverage, plus you've got you know, three or four times more classes now, and again, just the mess of the global namespace and polluting that with so many more names. yeah it's just to me, it's not worth it in the, in the Salesforce land. I'd be curious to hear what other people are doing though in regards to true unit tests versus are we all just doing functional tests? Like for example, if your unit if your quote unit test in Salesforce for a Visual Force controller, it looks like, you know, when you in your test setup, you're like inserting an account and <laughs> things are going on with the database, and the way you assert that it something did what it's supposed to do is by querying from the database and then seeing it, that it inserted the right records. Well, that's not a unit test. It's not even close to a unit test. I mean, you're hitting a database. It's by, you know, if there, if there's one reason if there's one way to Truly tell whether or not it's unit test. If, if there's any kind of database involved, it was not a unit test. All right, but that's I think what we're doing. I think that's what
1: a lot of times. But I, I've actually switched away from that because I, at some point, someone's going to do something that's going to change, and I don't. I don't know if this is good or bad, but I'll put it out there, and someone can whip me and flog me for this. But my new pattern for for triggers is, I don't hook my code up to a trigger at all. I write my class. With all its functionality, and then I write my unit test for that for that class. And all I do is is give it what it expects from the trigger, basically mm-hmm. what it's gonna get from the trigger. I pass that in, and I validate what comes out. I don't query the database. I don't go and see if it inserted what I expected it to insert. I look at the output of that. Doesn't that only work with the like the after triggers? And it works with before. You're thinking before, but it does. It it can work with after if you if you do it right. Mm.
0: yeah, how do you get the afters stuff your your things
1: whatever because it, within the class it's it's maintaining what it has to update so I expose that through the test it's not it's not it's so like if if I have a, 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 a content that gets created it needs to go and create some child records or something the class is aware of what it's going to create and that gets exposed to my test so I can go in and see what it thinks it's going to create I don't have to say okay now query everything. All the child records for this contact, and make sure that it inserted them all. I look at what the class says it's going to do, and I validate that output. Yeah. <clears throat> On the before's, I don't have. I don't have to mess with that. I just look at what values were set, and I can validate that. Right. And then once that works, then I hook it up to a trigger, and then I add an in a, D, a DML operation to it, and then just run my tests and make sure everything still works, functional, basically. Yeah.
0: I mean, well, at some point, yeah, and you want that that end to end test that's that makes sure that. Your, you know, your before and your after triggers, and the th- and the the DML operations they do, which triggers more before and after that. Like once, when, when all that gets put together, that the system, including the date, the actual database triggers and all that, from beginning of a transaction to the end, the, the by the time you get to the end, the right thing is what's done.
1: Yes, but he- here's here's my change in philosophy. Is I used to think that I was writing tests to make sure that the system does what I expect it to do. That's what that was my thought. Now I'm starting to get to the mindset. My philosophy is. I just want to know that what I wrote does what I expect it to do. I but don't care what, what, what the system is doing. I care what I wrote. I care that...
0: The, yeah, but so your tests are not on now not a realistic test of, what hap, of what's going to work in production when the you know managed what, packages are there and... And, and, and,
1: and I'll, I'll tell you why, I, okay. why I've moved away from that. And that's because over time, as the system grows and people move stuff in and out, they're creating process builders, they're creating workflows, they're cr- new coders are coming in and creating their own stuff. All of a sudden, there's all this competing stuff. And and all of a sudden, things starts breaking everywhere. Yep. And I'm like, well, that's not my problem. I, all I care about is that what I wrote functions. And if someone decides that they're going to change that value later because of a new requirement, you don't have to yeah, worry but, about
0: it. Okay. But what you're saying, like, all you care about is what you
1: wrote functions.
0: Well, for the client, it actually doesn't function. That's really all that matters.
1: No, because what's happening is, is given the scenarios that I, that I have, I need, I need my code to do XYZ. But later on down the road, someone decides, okay, for this one scenario, even though I've, it's included in my scenario, um, go ahead and do this, this, and this. The reason I stopped caring is because I've gone into those places and seen that people have commented out my assertions. And why did they comment my assertions? Because mine was validating something that they were changing yeah, that's, later.
0: That's the that's different thing, though. You're, you're changing your story on me now. No, I'm not. <clears throat> I'm saying you need to be doing you need to be doing end to end tests. That's the only way to know that the system is doing what it's supposed to.
1: I'll, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm I'm unit testing my functionality and making sure that it outputs what, what I expect it to output. But the system may not work though. I mean y- your code someone, may be someone right. Someone may add a workflow that may change right. how that works. And as long as my code asserts to true, I'm fine with that. The See I'm not because
0: I want I want my test to I want a test to fail if someone creates
1: a workflow that, that breaks things. I want a test to fail. They don't run work they don't run unit tests when someone creates a workflow.
0: You know well, I, I work the way I work is we do we create these workflows in the sandbox.
1: I know. I'm glad.
0: I'm I'm happy for you. No, no, I'm just saying. I'm envious of you.
1: That's not how my world works. But even no.
0: But even if you did work in that world, the, the method that you're using would still not work. You still would not have a test that lets you know that something was broken. You would everything would look good, and that would get deployed to production. And then later, you'd find that data was wrong because you didn't have a you didn't have a test that broke. You didn't have a test that told you that oh, someone created a workflow, and it turns out it broke this thing.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I know it's not real. I know it's not. The intended purpose of unit tests. I know it's not the intended purpose of regression testing. I know that. Right. All I'm saying is that in your environment, yes, I would do it that way. I would do the functional end-to-end assertions everywhere. Things would be solid. I, I, I can.
0: I in, know in where this you're coming world from. Of yeah.
1: Shotgun development, right. where I just it's fire and forget, get this done and move and move on. Yeah. I'm finding that it's more of a headache. To try to try to enforce end to end in my unit testing than it is to just validate my function. Because works it makes correctly.
0: you responsible for all these other jackasses. Yes, I know. I, I feel I'm, I'm now feeling your. I'm, I'm having some empathy for your pain here, <laughs> and, I, and I get why you do that. I just it's boy to me it's it's really unfortunate that you've gotten to that that to get to that place where that's how you're how you're doing things. You're like you know what, I at this point I can only be responsible for what I've done. Right. And uh, what what sucks about that is that that is an individual mentality that you've, you've been forced into. It's like the team has pushed you out and you're just like, uh, you're like, man, I, this team is so dysfunctional that that literally all I can do is like what I'm going to do. And I'm going to have tests that make sure that that works. Mm -hmm. And then everything else the team's doing, I I just, it's such a mess. I can't be responsible for it. And
1: it's not even, that's not even my job. So that's a a fair summary of that. That's, that's sad. (laughs) that's not everything I work on, but you know, for, for the ones that are significant, that's exactly how I feel. And that's exactly how I operate.
0: Do we we have a more, I'm looking for an upbeat topic. Let me, let me, I actually, I've got, (laughs) I've got some funny thing. I got a couple of clips here. Um, why did I got my, my notes? I I look at these notes now. I'm just like, I am getting old. my brain does not work right anymore. Wow. Okay. Um, Make sure I get these lined up. Okay. So we've, we've, <laughs> we've talked about it before, like, you know, d- you know, data science and, you know, Salesforce, you know, they, they it was, I, think, I guess the, it was when they started getting into analytics wave, the wave, right? And for, you know, they, I think they were pretty careful not to call that big data. But then we, because we, and we had conversations
1: like, is this really big data? What, what does it mean to be big data? Well, and, the media didn't. The media took, took it as big data. Yeah. That's well yeah you the time you don't hear about big data anymore but at the time it was big data everything right well you're, you're, you're talking about jackasses that just take
0: press releases and munge them up with what other people have written and then output an article then and they don't even know I mean I still see this that they, they clearly don't have any idea or no clue as to what they're writing about they're just outputting this word soup that has the right buzzwords and it's kind of some information from the press mm-hmm. release and there you go that's news I mean that's that that's an article that was just written.
1: Right.
0: But anyway, you know, you know, we've been talking about well, what is it what does it even mean to be a data scientist? And I've even said that like when you talk to these guys, they don't even th- this was not their term for themselves. This was not like a, in my opinion, this was not like a legitimate term. Like you don't you don't become a data scientist. That's that was not a thing. And I here I have proof for you. So this is this is a woman who uh very smart PhD, and she's gonna tell her story of how she became a data scientist. It this is a very short clip though. But in the meantime, I also needed to be employed sure. you know because i have three kids and stuff so i got a job at a startup i became a data scientist it was really easy i just changed my title to data scientist <laughs> and i got a job um in a like company doing stuff with online advertising Online advertising that's how you become a data scientist <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's total bs um and, and then she, later she describes like what is a data scientist which is less funny more more informational it's somebody who uses historical data to build algorithms that predict people instead of predict markets. I was predicting people, but it was really not that different. Algorithms that predict people. That's what a data scientist is. Hmm. Which is weird because there's nothing in the in the name data scientist that implies that it's a science about data about people. But that's practically speaking, that's how they're being employed today. Right. Um
1: well, who generates bigger data than marketing?
0: That's true. And also, I, I was able to, I had to do some cutting to make this flow right, but I got I got a new item for the soundboard out of that.
1: It was really easy. I just changed my title to data scientist. <laughs> Made the soundboard.
0: Yeah. Right. yeah spe- speaking of big data. I know how we can have a Big fun, data scam is a huge scam.
1: <laughs> I know how we can change the tone of this podcast. We already did. I know, but I know how we can make it better. Okay. Let's pop this open because I'm thirsty.
0: Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah, well... This is, and you know what? Do I have like a? Do I have any kind of like alarm or notification sound? I have no idea. Uh, Let's see. Let's see if I can just find something quickly
1: here. I don't think I do. Do I? You know what? Use this one. There we go.
0: I just, I just (laughs) want to send. This is a. I just want to send a heads up here for to Jody M. I'm not only know her last name is, but Jody M. Go ahead and fast forward about five minutes. Because <laughs> we're gonna talk about beer.
1: <laughs> That's good that she gave a heads up.
0: Yeah, no, nah, she. I'm just playing. I mean, she she made some. I sorry made some comment on Twitter about like, oh, fast forward past all that beer crap, and then you get, you'll get to the good stuff. Okay. <laughs> this is a. I uh, picked these up yesterday. Victory Prima Pils. Been around for a while, but uh, this is a German Pilsner, which, in my opinion, is the superior of the variety. I had to pour it into my whiskey glass. The original Pilsen, obviously were Pilsen. Check. And the I guess that would have been, uh, wow. Bohemia. But I like the German better because (laughs) it's drier. I'm old. It's drier. And the, and it's, their water's a little different there. They've got more mineral content. Well, uh, The, the Pilsen water is famous for being ridiculously soft. There's basically no minerals in it. And so you get a real round Mouth feel,
1: uh-huh.
0: and and it accentuates the malty aspect. I mean, for as light as pils as as a pilsner is, like a Czech pilsner, they are malty and sweet and grainy, which is which is enjoyable, and I can appreciate that. But I prefer the style of the German pilsner, or even even a a Dortmunder, because um, those even have even more mineral content,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is. Uh, I think something you have to try these side by side. If you tried like good examples of these different things. Right. And if I was to then give you like a Dortmunder and say, okay, this has m- more mineral content. Can you tell what I mean by that? And it's like, you can, it, like it, there's a f- mouthfeel and it's almost, there's a little bit of almost a saltiness. I mean, these are, these are, these are salts that, that in the water that yeah. you know, definitely affect flavor. You know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Sulfates. I love how it says
1: perfection since 1996. So victory, where is victory? I
0: don't
1: know. Are they in I'm gonna get this wrong. They're somewhere in the mid Midwest. I just, I just love these kind of faux established in 1800. Oh, Pensil- oh they're in uh, Pennsylvania. I, was- I feel like this is gonna, this is gonna have more meaning like a century from now.
0: <sighs> yeah, it's got a little bit more bitterness than a Czech Pilsner. <clears throat>
1: Czech yeah, Pilsner would be all sweet. Taste. Yeah,
0: and this, this is pretty well. I mean, this is an American take on it, so it's. A little bit. I think they use German hops. I think they say they use whole German hops, actually. But yeah, it's definitely a little bit of a higher hopping rate. It's probably, it may even be dry hopped. Definitely, like, late hop additions.
1: Because mm-hmm.
0: you just get so much aroma of, like, fresh hop. Yeah, I just like that. It's just a more crisp. The German Pilsners are more crisp than the Czech Pilsners, which, is, which for my style, I, I kind of prefer. Although I appreciate that. I don't
1: all. do a lot of Pilsners, so.
0: You know, I don't either, and and because the the big German heritage American breweries basically ruined the pilsner by creating the terrible American adjunct lager, mm-hmm. which is based on a Czech pilsner or a German pilsner, but they subbed out a lot of the barley for corn and rice, um, cheaper and I don't know, easier to work with, maybe not sure, but they really watered it down and <coughs> ended up making a crap product, and so pilsner just got a, I mean, people. Equated pilsner with crap, crappy beers, and anyone who's interested in craft beer, like that's that's what you're running away from, right? Right. Mm -mm. Except those are like classic. I mean, the real thing, classic styles that are, you know, something to appreciate and understand. And so there's been a now a resurgence amongst the the young craft breweries of pilsner, and really a distinction between Czech pilsner, German pilsner. Um, Dortmund. So someone, next, someone in town. I think wave of craft. Ah, three, three nations. This two-year-old brewery here, here in Dallas, they make a, they make a German pilsner now. I mean, sorry, they make a Dortmunder. I can't remember the name of it, but I love Dortmunder. Uh, great Lakes has a great Dortmunder. I discovered them in, when we were up in Ohio. Do you remember Great Lakes? Because you could get mm-hmm. a mini grocery store around around there, not too far from Cleveland, which is where Great Lakes was from. Yeah. All right. Hopefully Jody's back with us now. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you want, so do you have topics you want to go over? Uh, yeah. All right. Let's do something. I'd have a quiz for you later, by the way. That's coming. Just just letting you know that's coming up. It's not a hard one. It's more of an opinion. You, you, you can't, there's no wrong answers. There's no wrong yeah, answers. Yeah, it's like common core. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's not get started on that. <clears throat> <laughs> Uh, Solaris is going away. Did you hear about that? Who is Solaris? So the operating system?
0: Uh-huh. I did not hear that.
1: Well, it's it's a rumor. It's a big rumor oh. right now. That uh, directly from Larry is cease all operations.
0: Is is it and owned mass, by Oracle? Yeah, in layoffs coming. Okay. Yeah, really.
1: Yeah, I don't really know anyone who uses
0: Solaris. I mean, that was a big thing. Yeah, yeah, I and know.
1: Uh, I don't know. It was it was it was just mentioned in a in a some kind of layoff.com. I don't know what that is. I, feel like I, a, I don't even really know how it got in my thread, but it was like Oracle Corp layoffs. And I was, I was like, oh, let's see what that's about. And it was about Solaris, so. Yeah. I think a lot of people went to, what was the other one? You remember
0: SCO? That was the yeah. one that they were involved in all the lawsuits. Who was who were they suing? I can't remember. But I, now I feel like a lot of the, the Solaris guys went to BSD. Hmm. So BSD is still a big deal. I don't know why. I mean, I, I, you know, because all they all predate Linux, Linux came after all of all
1: of them. Well, I think Linux is eating everyone's lunch.
0: Yeah, well, pretty much, except for I think some proprietary areas where it's like, hey, you run our Unix, you can't just run this open source garbage. <laughs>
1: <clears throat> I I I'd hope there's less of that these days. That that sounds like a '90s thing where everything it c- was yeah. was play ball or, or or get out. You know, kind of does. It seems today we're we're a little more free and open. I hope.
0: So why, why, why is that on your list? You, were, you were, Did you do any Solaris or?
1: No, I, I, got, I grabbed it because it, the title was Oracle Layoffs and it kind of pissed me off first of all. <laughs> I got link baited oh, into it but yeah. then it was just Solaris. Yeah, yeah.
0: Like the two, the two remaining people that were working on Solaris got laid off.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to do a quick layoff. Right. So my other top, well I have a few others but I want to talk about Process Builder. Okay. Favorite topic.
0: This is this is this is the topic that doesn't die.
1: It doesn't die. There's there's always something to learn. No, you know what's not going to die. Something this is to... it's
0: going to get worse because they're going to. I mean, they're slowly improving Process Builder, and I hope they do. Which which actually, <laughs> the problem with that is it. That's going to make it more and more of a problem for me. The better Process Builder gets, the more of a problem it's going to be for me.
1: Only if Process Builder doesn't play nice with with our code. Right. Like, it would be nice if Process Builder ran tests
0: or if people knew how to create tests for their and by the way I, I gotta fix this I, I I still don't know how to call this okay the tool is called process builder uh-huh. what is the thing called that you make with process builder a process a process people don't say that no they call them they call them process builders yeah can we fix this, please? <laughs> Can someone get on the success community, whatever that thing is, and like
1: I've do used a poll or something? too? Just be, And mainly because I wasn't sure. If pe- I, I guess I'm going along with the terminology. I've also heard people call them process builds.
0: You, uh, they're processes. You create process builds. They're processes. Well, because process is already an overloaded word in the Salesforce space. You can't really just
1: call them a process. Well, they get processed alongside the workflow. In fact, they're in the same chain as so the workflow.
0: processes that get processed, the processes that get processed, but get workflows processed get processed workflow.
1: too. <laughs> they do, but they're they're in the same block as workflow, and then your uh, Apex code runs, so they get run before your code runs. Yeah, Salesforce and naming things. Oh, it'll change. It'll change. Yeah, it'll be you know, super awesome workflow or something.
0: Let's let's say that you know they they process do They fix all the performance problems. What it, to wherever to whatever degree there are performance problems. I, I hear that they are. They're still. They fix the error handling. The error messages. Let's say they fix the metadata and they make it so that it's it it plays nice with metadata. It's, it plays nice with version control and, and deployments and all that. Mm-hmm. I still have the problem of then the problem is people are going to be building these really complex things in in process builder, and I feel like that's a not near of a as good of a way to build things because it's it's hard to make big scalable things in process builder, but people will do that. I mean, they're going to make build things, but they're not going to be easily understandable, maintainable. You know, you're not going to be able to, uh, I
1: don't know. To, well, you know it, it suffers from the same thing we suffer from in that at the time you're building it, you probably could massage it into something big and complex. <clears throat> and at the time you built it, you understand everything that's happening and you feel awesome. And that happens to us developers too. We build this massive complex automation routine that does this really cool stuff and then we walk away from it for a month and then we have to come back and modify it and we're going, what the hell did I do that for? Or why did I do that? Or what is this doing?
0: I've already seen that. And this is on not, that big of processes where people are like, crap, I don't even know what this is doing. I don't understand why it's doing this. I've seen people, you know, have to stay up all night trying to fix things and they're like, I just don't understand this process. I'm like, now, granted, you can write some really bad Apex code that's just as hard to understand as some big hairy processes. Yeah. But I know in, in Apex land, we can write clean code. We can have good tests. It can be factored out into intelligible, you know, single responsibility Something that really can scale up and and still be understandable and maintainable right. and debuggable and all these uh, you know, illities, right? All these right. non-functional aspects. I like that illities, Yeah. <laughs> um and that's something that I don't see process builder getting. Like that's like the that's like the final hurdle that it's just I don't see how it would because well, I I just don't think, I mean, we've had these promises of, you know, this f- kind of flow chart computing for forever. And it's even if you fix all the other problems with it, you're still stuck with that final problem of Having, having these big boxes and flowchart looking things is, is actually not a good way to program. And that's what you are doing. You are programming. And that's one of these guys like Ross Meyer Cord, who I'll talk about in a minute, the Salesforce CIO, um, talks about, you know, the, the low coding stuff. I mean, you are, you are programming. And I've, mm-hmm. I've looked at people who are built these processes and I've, I've said that, you know, you really should, I mean, you're doing like variables and, and especially flow. I, yeah, I flow, think it's more fun. You're especially. doing variables and you're looping over collections. Like, you really should just knuckle down and learn Apex. It's you're, you will create a much better product of your work, right? If you'll just learn Apex, learn you know. You, I mean, you're you're already understanding some of these programming concepts. They're yeah. just in triangles and boxes and, and stuff. I agree. <clears throat> and so, to me, process builder is still relegated to just small things or things that I don't want
1: to work in. Well, that's how we look at it, but it, that's not how it's being used. I mean, people oh, I know. are doing oh, I know. very complex stuff. And,
0: and Salesforce is, is guilty of making people, making it sound like you should build these big things in Process Builder. And I'm, I'm here to say, you should not build these big things in Process <laughs> Builder. Because at some point, it's, it, <clears throat> it's all going to come crashing down, and
1: no one's going to know how to fix it. But that, that's the goal of it. The goal of it is, is to, you know, clicks not code, right? Hashtag clicks not code. Why is that a goal?
0: It, if code it, it, is a better tool than a certain other thing why shouldn't you use the better tool
1: well that, that depends on what I mean creating a creating a field on a database used to be a developer thing or used to be a syst, uh, database admin thing and now Joe Blow can go in and go through a wizard and create a field right. with all these data oh, and types I, and dependencies I, and validation right. logic I, no and I John I, I
0: use GUI tools to create database columns all the time but I still end up with that tool can also generate me a, t- a create table statement that will that still is something that can be put in version control and is a part of a database migration so that it can again be automated. It can be it can you can have CI, you can have rollbacks. I mean, you still there's still all these important things. I'm not saying that using a UI is bad.
1: No, I I just see it as an advancement in technology to where these these things that can be abstracted away into you know some kind of GUI or point and click. You know, allows us to focus on other things. We used to have to focus on on building a database from scratch. We used to have to focus on building memory management routines and and push and pull from memory and and allocate and pointers. Right. And now we don't. Garbage collection. We don't. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Right. We just write our code.
0: <clears throat> right. And and a lot of those are good abstractions. It's just when when you when you're using a tool like Process Builder, which at a certain point be- becomes uh, it obscures the logic and makes it hard to track things down then that's when I'm like, this is not a good tool. When something that should take 30 minutes to fix has a whole team of people overnight because they can't figure out what the hell's going,
1: what the hell's happening. Well, here's my take on it. <clears throat> and I think really what it comes down to is the fact, it's the same problem I have with a lot of what Salesforce has released lately. And that is, they rush to market. This,
0: yeah, this They're always going to do that. Yeah, that's apparent. I know. It's just in their DNA.
1: It, but, you know, I feel like if this product was more more well thought out, more integral with the with with this system i mean meaning it respects all the metadata rules and all those kind of things it could it could have been a good next step it didn't have to do everything but it could have been a good next step but now there's all this backlash there's this feedback that it doesn't do this or it worked for a while and it stopped working or now there's this weird error that comes back that means nothing to no one and i can't t- i can't provide a user-friendly message up from the flow that i built to do all this other stuff yeah. that, that salesforce said i could do so and my problem is
0: not in the implementation or the quality of Im- implementation of process builder. I, I have a fundamental problem with the concept itself. I don't. I, y- you're, I, you're programming. Th- and
1: that's fine. Right? I'm all for
0: You're programming, this. but you're doing it in a in a tool that once you get something that's non-trivial becomes not worth its weight anymore. Well, well here's and, the thing. And, and it's also it's it's yet another way to do something in Salesforce. So now when something goes wrong as the like a developer you're like okay, now I've now, I now I don't, now it's just, I, I can't just like search through my code base anymore to, to search for a variable name or my, what might be going wrong. Now you've got to, in addition to go now and look at workflows, now you've got to go through and search the work, the flows
1: mm-hmm.
0: the, and the processes and the workflows and the triggers and the other apex just to, to find out why something's happening. Right. I mean, one of the common things that you run up against is all of a sudden uh, a test will fail. Like you'll have a test on a trigger and it's failing. And you're like, well, I don't know why that's happening. You you know, you, you look at the, your test code and it creates an account and it provides a certain value for a field. And when it when the assertion runs, uh, that value is not what you expected it to. It's like, well, I don't see how's that value even changing. You can't, now you're now you're in search. You know, now you're like first place you're going to look at your code because you can just do a find in find in directory find in path or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, there's not really any good. It's, just, it's still just searching through files now in the Salesforce world, but. But after that, if you can't find out what it is, now you've got, now you you got to go search through all the workflows. You got to search through the flows and the and the processes. Mm-hmm. Something is changing that value. Something's screwing something up. And it's it, the problem is it's just it's just yet another place to go that for something to go wrong that you've got to go search through. But it actually doesn't add any ability to the system that wasn't already there. It's just a different way to do it. Well, it does. It and, gives it gives. And another way to do it is it it enables people to build software who have no software engineering skills. And that's just going to create a problem. They don't understand, you know. It's just that, and 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 I. And that's 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 the the dichot, the 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 paradox of this is that like it's cool that you can take someone who has no software engineering skills and they can kind of build some software.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But on the other hand, you just let someone who has no software engineering engineering skills build your business as software. Yeah, and that's that works until it doesn't. <laughs> and that's when just you know, I wish I wish there were just some magical rule that's like, here's the line, don't cross it. And if you do cross it, then you need to, you know, don't use that tool, use this tool. But there's just there's no easy answer to it.
1: But I'm I'm not I'm not of the the mindset of creating a silo. I I think I think people should should get exposed to this stuff. Someone who who starts writing process builders and, and like you said, you find out that they've written some some pretty complex stuff, and they understand variables. You go,ing you should be a coder, and maybe they do go into that, and they find right. a whole new career for themselves right. doing that.
0: And and regardless of whether they do it or not, that, you still shouldn't write like big complex stuff in, in process builder. <laughs> Sometimes it's just a mess. It's a it's a, it's a, a rat's nest. It's, it's,
1: it's a necessity. It's, it's the necessity creates is the mother invention. I know that sounds cheesy, but in, in this instance, you know you have something. You have this tool that says you can do this, so you go and figure out how to do it. You get it to do it. And you've just, you just invented a new way of doing something.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess if, if it's, if it is your only way, but at some point it's like a, it's like a aid. like, okay, you had, yeah, okay, I, I get the fact that you needed that band aid. You had this wound that you needed to stop the bleeding, but at some point you need to go, you need to have a surgeon come in and stitch that thing up because that's not a good long-term way to do
1: it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we have the EMTs and the surgeons, right? I guess so. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Well, this is this is odd because I was I was expecting to kind of you know rail a bit on on, but now I'm like on the side of defending it. Well, uh, that's why I said. I mean, Process Builder's gotten a lot better from what I from what I hear. I well, mean, so so here's here's one of the things that I found out. Um, yeah, Process Builder does have his issues still, but I'm learning that what my real issue is is flows. Right. So what's happening is is. The Process Builder logic and steps and, and all that is easily understandable. There are quirks with it. There are bugs in it. There are issues with it. I'm not going to downplay that. But what really is is causing most of my issues is is because Process Builder can't do certain things, people are calling flows from Process Builder. Right, which they love. Yeah, because they can, they can loop through records. They can toss variables around, all that kind of stuff. But the chain of events or, I don't know, the bubble up the call the the the, the stack yeah <laughs> of of information coming back out into the flow into the process builder doesn't happen. <clears throat> Which is why you just get some general failure error and you have to go digging in the logs to try to find out where that failure actually happened. Yeah. Um so it seems like the the way it's architected and because they seem seem, I'm using air quotes seem to be very disparate technologies there's really no real communication between. Them. So when an error comes up, there's no way for it to bubble up into the process builder, so that you can say, "Here's what the real issue is." Yeah, so, it's so like, all it can do is give hmm, you a generic error. So it's like it
0: fires off the flow, and then it's a fire and forget, right? It it, it moves on. The 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 process does, which is why you don't get a I good. I think so.
1: I think the process <clears throat> quits, and then you're still in the same transaction. Yeah. So you're in the flow mm-hmm. land, but for some reason, the flow because of the way it was called. Doesn't know anything about the the original UI, so it has no way of passing information back. So you yeah. just get this general error. Is my assumption.
0: And, and the, I think you still have to go check like the administrator's email to find the actual cause of the error. And I, I still yeah, see that a still, lot. Yeah, you'll still
1: get you'll yeah. get an email or something, and it it may or may not have the information you need, and then you have to dig into the logs. But that's
0: another thing. Like, I mean, can you? And I guess I, I just don't know. I'm just asking sincere questions here. Can you even? Is there any intelligent way of handling like a? Can you have like a hierarchical? You know. Except, exception handling to no. to intelligently handle exceptions and recover and no.
1: yeah, so, which, which is a drawback of some of these tools and that you you don't have the ability to kind of very selectively handle exceptions. It, yeah, it it just fails and you have to fix it. Yep. I mean you really you design these things with the intent that they're never gonna fail. Unlike code, where we design it and we go, okay, here's my try catch and here's my global exception handler. I may have a DML exception handler. I may have a my class exception handler, but just in case I don't, I'm not. Something happens that I'm not expecting. Here's my global exception handler. Yeah. Um, that 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 concept doesn't exist in Process Builder. <clears throat> you know, and and, I, and people are just you know people that
0: are using Process Builder. I mean, there's they're just you know it's a way for them to get their job done. <clears throat> and, well, Other, otherwise they'd have to go find a developer. And here's the, here's the here's the the reality of the situation. <laughs> <laughs> if they went and found a developer to create some triggers for them instead of this. They may not end up with anything better than what they would have created in Process Builder. In fact, there's a, there's a pretty low chance they would end up with something better. Well, now you're talking in circles, Jeremy. <laughs> no, I'm not. So use Process Builder.
1: But you know what? If you are a developer, it might not be any better. Well, it goes back to the, like, knowing,
0: how do you even know how to hire the right developer?
1: Well, you know what? And when it comes to certain requirements, you know, hey, we need Salesforce to do XYZ. Mr. Admin, go go make that happen. You're like, okay, um, I I'm told by Salesforce I can get this done in a process, so I do a process and I got it to work. Yeah. The the default isn't okay. Let me shop around a developer or an architect and get some advice and figure out what the best tool is for this. No, it's just I have this requirement. Salesforce says I can do it without X Y without my that developer, so I'm going to try it.
0: I mean, the thing is, you know, I guess it depends on what you're building. I mean, but people are building. Accounting systems, material handling systems, manufacturing systems, student scheduling systems. I mean, all kinds of stuff on Salesforce, right?
1: You, for you those, not hope they had developers.
0: It, it, yeah. And 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 again, in those situations, you really, again, this is my opinion, you really want to avoid things like Process Builder for so many reasons. They don't play well with metadata. It's, it's not a good, they're not good abstractions. It's not, they don't play well with, you know, they're just not as transparent and and co- and so, so, capable as 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 so programming. Let, me, code let is. me throw
1: this question at you then. So you're you're an admin, a small company. They're, they're, you know, there's no money for a developer, and Salesforce says you can do this without a developer. And so the expectation is you're going to find a way to make this happen. So you go out and build a process. No, I'm you. You do what you got to do. If I mean, if 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 that is your only option, then
0: yes, do that. Okay. But but know that you. You have built
1: your system on bubble gum and duct tape, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm not ready. I'm not ready to, to dismiss Process Builder and throw it in, throw it in the trash. I think it has the potential to be a really good tool. I think it has. I mean, there's a reason why you know .dot NET developers and Java developers and
0: Ruby developers don't don't use you know bubbly drag and drop things. Well, I can tell you, I I was turned <laughs> off on Java
1: because of Visual J Visual Java. You always talk about that, and I still have no idea what you're talking about. It. I will find Java it. never had such thing. Yes, it did. I will find it. It was this. This stupid tool where you kind of coded blocks of code and then you had to draw lines between the two. Someone please, I'll, I'll yeah. try to find it, but if, if anyone is aware of this, please let me know because this is this is kind of nostalgia for me. I've been doing job I development went, since, since the a, 90s and I, I never have coded like that. I walked into a CompUSA, went to the shelf well, of software right development tools. There was a box that said Visual Java, I think it was Visual Java, and bought it. And installed it, and I never got further than John, the few examples. You it you went me off. you
0: walked into a a Comp USA <laughs> store. So, so first of all, okay, and you bought some Java thing, and from a retail box. <laughs> 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 yes, I did. No wonder you have su- no wonder you have such a lifelong dim view of Java.
1: <laughs> Plus, I I prefer the the namespace, uh, uh, m- mentality or uh, moniker. Okay. What's the, what's the right word for what? I don't know. As opposed to packages, for some reason, packages doesn't resonate with me. Namespace is, resonates with me. Packages does not resonate yeah. with me. And and even in IntelliJ, I I'm like, I want to create a folder in my uh, static resource. How do I do that? Oh, create package. Damn it. Create package. Yes. Oh,
0: oh, is that because it does some kind of resource bundling or something? Yeah. Okay. I don't use it's. I get. I don't use
1: that functionality. So in your tree of the static resources, there's no new folder in your in that. It's new. You create a package under the package, and that's a. It's folder. not a Java package though. It's just no because okay. well packages in, in Java on your hard drive are folders. It's they, a folder. Structure.
0: Well, generally depending on which class loader you're using,
1: but yeah. So the the analog. What is that word? There's a word for that. The analog I don't know I don't know the anyways, the analog for that folder the in count, Java counter package, Counter the corollary? I don't know. We need a thesaurus, John.
0: <laughs> we need a thesaurus as a service. <laughs> I'm sure that exists. <laughs> All right, so I mentioned this to a guy Ross Meyercord. you know he actually saw this a while back on Salesforce's blog, but it got republished like a, two months later in CIO magazine. And he's talking about, you know the, the low code stuff. So he says, I, I can confidently say that we're living in one of the most exciting times for developers. It seems like every year we're creeping closer and closer towards a codeless future as technology evolves to favor low-code and no-code development. Can I okay. can I inject Wait, let me let me say this one more sentence later later in the article. There will always be a market for sophisticated developers. There will always be more sophisticated problems that require deep programming. <laughs>
1: You know, they just understand. said that we're creeping closer to a I, codeless I future. I really don't <laughs> understand these tech tycoons, I'll call them, who who want to champion the 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 world of kids, teaching them technology and teaching them code and all this kind of stuff at the same time. But you've kind of done some with your kids, right? Yeah. You know. But at the same time, they're basically saying, well, you won't need to code. You just drag and drop crap. Or these, or these code academies where you're not really developing, you're dragging blocks of predefined code uh, methods and kitting them together. There's my word, <laughs> <laughs> and kitting them together to, to make a, a program. It's, come yeah. on, it's you're not teaching kids to code. You're teaching them how to how to kit together things and and yeah. produce some output.
0: Well, it's that gets, Legos. That gets back for, to, for, for
1: for programming.
0: That gets back to you know all these business leaders, including Mr. Uh, King of San Francisco himself, talks. That, you know, complains that there's not enough people available to do these STEM jobs, but none of them seem to be affected. Even actually making real attempts to get more people to go into STEM, but why would people still are not going to STEM? And a lot of the people that are graduating with STEM, particularly women, end up not going into STEM because we, we've either shipped those jobs out or we're H1Bing all the people in to do
1: those jobs here. Oh, well, now you're segwaying to another topic.
0: No, I'm just saying, I mean, <laughs> it's it, just, it dovetails into the, what we were just talking about.
1: Well, it does. It's just frustrating. It's just it's frustrating I mean, for me. Because... Would you
0: tell your kids to go into STEM right now, knowing that... You know, there, there's all this demand the, to to raise H one B limits and to, and to offshore, you know st- stuff that's here to other places. I mean, is STEM really the best place to go, or should you go into like business and marketing
1: and or something? No, I I encourage my kids into STEM, but but and, and STEM is a buzzword, so I hate using that. But I'm I'm more. Uh, uh, not, oh no, the new one's
0: Steam, but just because we have to be inclusive. Oh okay, well because you have to add art. Oh art, okay. <laughs>
1: So, so the 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 encouragement that I give my kids, and especially my daughter, because she's really into science, she's into math and science, and I love that about her. It is don't focus so much on on the career. Focus on wh- what you what you want to study and what's your interest. You know, you know she she wants to do certain things, and I'm like, well, get into physics, get into engineering, get get some background in that, and see how that plays out for you. And she's only nine, so this is this yeah, is are you all telling your nine year old to get into physics? And tell my nine year well, she's she loves, well be you know what it is? It shows like um outrageous acts of science and where on earth those two shows she loves because i love them and she sits there and watches and now i, I thought she just watched them because i was watching them but then like she sees the announcement for the newest episode and she's like we got to watch that mm. when can we watch that and she wants to sit next to me and watch it so she sees this stuff and she figures it out and it, it piques her interest so i'm all for exposing kids to this stuff i'm all for exposing them to technology right. and so giving them. we know where
0: you stand <laughs> but there's a big butt coming
1: But I'm not on board with the idea that it should be dumbed down, you know, that that the science should that the fundamental science should be abstracted from everyone so that you're just pointing and clicking away. Even even in things we do, you and I do the abstraction that we have of garbage collection, the abstraction we have of memory management. We could get by, but you and I both have a deeper understanding of at least why we do the things or what those things do and why they do them. And, and why we're glad we don't have to worry about them. I still feel strongly about the fundamental understanding deep down of why we do the things we do, and that just comes from studying and caring about what you I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna say caring about what you do, you know having a sense of professionalism and understanding that. yep, I don't think technology should be this blanket thing where everyone can do it just point and click and and drag and drop a bunch of stuff and there you go, you're done. you're awesome. I'm sorry. if you want to be a professional, if you want to want to really learn and understand something. Learn and understand it at a very fundamental level. Well, that will make you. A better, so, how does that?
0: How does that? How does that um, align with having people building software who have zero software engineering skills? They have zero application security skills, John.
1: Well, I, I, think, they, I think. Did I think, you
0: hear what I just said? Zero security skills. I know. That, that and they're building your software.
1: Well, they're building it within.
0: No, they're building again, it within
1: within a closed environment. That, that doesn't that mean you can't distract them well, from
0: that. You don't get abstracted from security, unfortunately. To a certain extent. Oh, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, think you very much you could, need could to understand.
1: A, you could write a process flow that that dumps a bunch of your customer data somewhere. Sure. Maybe. I'm
0: thinking more. You know, this common threats and vulnerabilities. I mean, people just have you know, there's there's zero knowledge of it.
1: There, that's who's building your software now. Okay. Well, well, the platform is supposed to take care of that. <clears throat> the platform is supposed to take care of that. I think Salesforce does a good data.
0: job of taking care of a lot of that.
1: Yeah,
0: but there's there's still ways to there's still traps you can fall into
1: if you don't know if you don't understand security, know what the common threat vectors are. Well, that's true, but I mean operating systems do the same thing for us. They 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 protect our memory. They protect you know how they browsers now protect us. They sandbox all the websites, whereas before they didn't. Yeah. I mean, our, increasingly the, the security and everything is being handled for so, us.
0: So what happens when your customer information gets leaked and you get sued and in depositions they discover that the person you had building your software had zero software engineering skills and zero security skills? But you're not building Salesforce, you're configuring Salesforce. You're building a system.
1: Okay, so Salesforce marketing wants you to believe you're building a system. No, you are, but the reality is you're <coughs> not you building a system. Sure, you are. You're not building the routines that that pushes the data into the database or pulls the data out. You're not building the routines that that enforces security across profiles. Well, or ju- and
0: just like Salesforce doesn't actually build the software that writes the data into the database, Oracle does that. But they're still building a system.
1: And it's and, just heading on, on where that issue happened. The lawsuit would would follow that chain. Salesforce would get sued, and Salesforce would say, that wasn't us, that was Oracle, so go sue Oracle. No,
0: most likely, what's going, so to most likely what's going to happen is Salesforce said, well, we actually have a secure system, but what they did, they exposed themselves through no fault of the platform they were building on.
1: And likely what the lawyer would do is, is list Oracle as a joint, uh, what do they call that? They call it something where they bring someone else in as part of the lawsuit. Yeah, co-defendant. There you go. Um, no, uh, but, what, what, what point was I trying to make? I don't know.
0: You're trying to defend that it's totally okay to have complete amateurs building
1: software. I guess I'm saying. I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's good to expose people to it. You never know what's going to pique someone's interest enough to say, "Hey, this could be a new career opportunity for me." And for some people, for some companies, this is their only option. For others, the budget kind of dictates how much you can do, and a lot of times. A quick process builder is cheaper than a full blown development cycle, especially since you don't have the unit test. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean it really kind of gets back <clears throat> to what what are you what are you doing? What are you building? Is it something itty bitty that's like, okay, we just need this quick little thing, or is it
1: <clears throat> I mean ultimately when I brought up this topic, what I originally intended was that, you know, I know I know we rail on it a lot and we talk about all the things that are bad, but there are people who are benefiting benefiting from it. There are people who are using it because they have to and they need it. Also, I mean, you have to go back to
0: because I, I again, I mean, I might criticize people who are, you know, having uh, people who have no software engineering skills building software. But how many systems have you seen where <laughs> people who call themselves developers get built out a system in Salesforce that was so stuck that you couldn't get anything in or out of production because it's in just some crazy state where all the tests depend on data, and so. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? Like I remember, one, so you, somehow, somehow, amazingly, got into production. The code base got into production, yeah. but it was all ba- it was all required um, uh, implicitly, you know, required a certain state of data in production, and and now you can't get anything. You can't deploy. You can't remove things from production. You can't add things to production because some tests are failing, and no one can figure out like what state the data needs to be in. So those tests pass, or it can never get in that state <clears> because of the I've seen not small Salesforce consulting companies get their own orgs in that situation.
1: I know which one. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I remember And it's none of the ones we've talked about. It's (laughs) none of the, I'll just say that right now. None of the people that have, that are friends of the podcast. Yeah. You guys don't. But we know. So yeah, I mean, just just, again, just because you're having quote developers do it doesn't mean that they're also not going to get everything wrapped around the axle. Yeah. And then that goes back to
1: hiring. It all, it all comes full circle <laughs> this is the hiring episode um, uh, so let, let's, let, let's talk about this this is my next topic well we still haven't popped the sack back into my Ross Meyer cord oh yeah article. that's right let's pop that <clears> stack. All
0: right. um, I just pulled some yeah quotes on here so he says anyone can really be a coder and you can solve so many problems with minimal or no code which is true you could some problems um, and then he says, Any, "Anyone can really be a coder." Okay,
1: it feels like he's giving a Dreamforce presentation. I, I, well, I feel like this is another one of these. I mean, it this needs, like the video with the people in the clouds and they're dreaming everything and everything. And okay, they're so happy. This
0: sentence now. itself is is contradictory. Anyone can be a coder. You can solve comma and you can solve so many problems with no code. That's well, then wrong. then he's you're code, not a coder. Coder was our word. <laughs> but John, if you're not writing, if it's no, if this, if if your job is doing things that require no code. Then how are
1: you a coder? So so the CIO Salesforce is now muddied. It makes coder zero word. sense. <laughs> it used to be developer was muddied because developer meant everyone yeah. who's point and clicking. And, and then we celebrated because we got the word back, and now they're taking coder away from us. And then he says our platform has
0: capabilities that the most technically advanced programmers can thrive in. Well, yeah. I think it, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that technically, and most technically advanced programmers in the world are not going to thrive in a Salesforce org. They may, they may get by.
1: It depends on what you mean by thrive. I mean, it, it's the, the, the uh, Salesforce marketplace is, does need some really good developers and you can make <clears> some money. Th- th- they are needed. They're needed Big and time. you can make some money, right?
0: Yes. Yes and Yes.
1: So you could thrive if that's your goal. And if your goal is to work on cutting edge technology this is, and, and this all is that.
0: actually an example of one I, I feel like this uh, some of the in some areas, uh Salesforce salaries have gotten inflated because to get good developers into Salesforce, you're having to way overpay to get them in because you're gonna really you're gonna get them to leave their non Salesforce thing. I mean, yeah. we're gonna have to pay for that.
1: Well, my concern my, my bigger concern <clears> is that <throat> the people who are coming in are the people that got rejected from from doing these other technologies, yeah, they're like, I'm a mediocre coder. No one else wants me on their team. I'll go to the Salesforce thing. Yep.
0: Um, but that that also reminds me of just all the <clears throat> if you go look at like the any of these forums, the success thing, the program, the the Salesforce Reddit. I mean, about every third post is, I'm I'm trying to get into Salesforce developer. How should I start? You know, how much money can I make?
1: Like every third, every the, third one. I don't mind the how can I start <clears> question. <throat> the how much money I'm, I can make question is odd. Well, just they, they, it seems like these tend to be people with like you know they're not coming from
0: a place of like um, like they you know like they skills built up or successful career as a Ruby programmer or something. Mm. It's hey, I heard I heard you can make a lot of money over here. A gold what, what do I need to do? There. Yeah, what do I need to do? What does this develop? You know, how do I? Can you help me with this? <laughs> you know. How do I learn Apex? Or you know, just we're dealing with that, and that also dovetails into that article that somebody provided us that was the problem with Salesforce hiring. Now that was my segue. Oh, that was your okay. Yeah. Well, awesome. Let's get let's
1: get into it. All right.
0: Where do you have it up? I do. Okay.
1: They they they, they oh this is a uh, Grace Tanner, senior Salesforce.com recruiter in the Bay Area. She titles this "the growing problem within the Salesforce.com market." That's all I got. I just wanted to read the title. I learned a new I learned a
0: new term, which is catfishing. <laughs> yeah, catfishing. And this is, I guess, it's in, in addition to actually fishing for catfish. It means um, to pretend to be someone someone that you're not by posting false information.
1: Well, I I typically see it in in um, fraud or scamming. You know, where someone's cat. That's what this you. is.
0: <laughs> this is fraud and scamming.
1: But I've I've, I've re- I didn't know. Naively, I didn't really connect the dots to people faking their resume in, in the Salesforce world.
0: What's, a, what's, a, what's the term called when you hire a l- very large consulting firm to do your big Salesforce project and they staff it with 30 really mediocre people? Uh, business
1: as usual? Is that not catfishing? <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> All right. Well, so what's. And, and that bugs me. And I, I feel like I need to to do a a thing before we talk about this cuz i don't want anyone to be offended but you know this article centers on the indian market and the influx of people that they have and it's it, she's saying that they they're getting a lot of fake candidates right so i just want to preface this and and saying that that i have some very specific comments <coughs> that i want to make but they're not made about anyone specific or meant to offend anybody i know
0: you're racist john just admit it <laughs>
1: Because I know a lot of really great developers in India, and I have, my, I have a story to tell that I th- think is relevant okay. in, an, in my opinion. But let's talk about this article and in, in the claims that are made, and that is that, that like you said, there's a flood of can- candidates that their resume says one thing, but they're really not that. Um, I've personally been involved on teams where I thought I was working with a specific individual. It turns out that individual was the face and there were three other people who had no idea what they were doing actually doing the work, yeah that's and and and
0: again, it's not that that's necessarily restricted to outsourcing or offshoring or anything else i mean that I've seen that happen in around here, yeah, I mean that kind of stuff does happen, but it's it's you know she's saying that the 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 market so when they go to post a job thing, they're getting you know like ninety five percent h one bs from India right. applying. <clears throat> and then she's, you know, talks about, well, why is that when, <clears throat> so supposedly, you know, Salesforce has been basically, gr- they're, they're growing. Um, well, yeah, where's, where's that Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Where is that?
1: Um, you caught me off guard, John. <laughs> but it seemed perfect. You should, you should have put that in there. Yeah. Salesforce is, is, is really ramping Hydrubod! up.
0: Okay. Yeah. So we, we know Salesforce, I mean, they've. Of course, we, we know that's, that's, where they, that's where they run all their support from. <clears throat> and they're definitely growing, trying to grow a massive market of, of
1: bodies. Well, they, they, they need developers. The, 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 the ecosystem needs Why don't developers.
0: they grow them here? We have, we have record, record low uh, labor force participation in this country. I, I don't know. And don't
1: we, don't have, we
0: have a startling number of people who graduate with STEM who do not end up going into STEM as a career. So let's fix. Well, I mean, why is that not being fixed? I mean, that would at least cut down on at least at least then if they're domestic, like they're close to you, you can see them face to face. And but when they're across the world, it's like it's so easy
1: for these scams to happen. Well, I think what it is 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 that as Salesforce, well, they they are enterprise. As they get more and more of these bigger enterprises, it requires more and more bodies, more and more people. Because they're basically throwing people at the problem to develop all these things that have to happen on short timelines and and all that kind of stuff. So those those teams tend to grow. They need a lot of people. They and and you got to find those people. And so I th- you know I think India is a is a I don't want to say resource, a rich wealth of people available.
0: And India has a crap load of
1: people. Yes, <laughs> they have a lot of people. What is it? two, two billion or who, a billion? It's know. in the billions. Yeah. So so they have. I'm going to say capacity. They have capacity to try to fill this need. And so I understand them going to India and trying to get people educated on Salesforce. And right. And, them and
0: Mark Benioff has been one of these guys that has been lobbying for years to get the H-1B limits raised.
1: I, I don't but know. Of course, the, I, don't I know what the answer is to that solu- to that problem. I, you know, well, because there's, it's there's a whole separate topic of how yeah. how H one B's what they're for because yeah. they're for like extraordinarily
0: talented in demand people and what, how they're being used. So there's a lot of H one B abuse going on, but let's. I think that's I think that's, that's a separate that, that's, topic, that's, that's, right?
1: Yeah. So so I, I'm fine with that. I'm I'm I in fact I encourage that. You know, wherever we can get you know people to kind of come in and fill this need and and help the community thrive and help Salesforce thrive because that's how I make my money. I need yeah. them to grow. I don't I don't want them to go away. Um, you know, l- let's do that. Let's do that. But let's do it honestly. Let's do it responsibly. Let's let's not have these companies where traditionally, and this is not just Salesforce, this is just outsourcing in general, where you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know the skill set the person you're going to get and the person you're talking to may not be the one who's doing the work even though they say yes. Not only that, there's the whole cultural difference as well which, which plays into it where I, I'm assuming it's cultural but it seems to be a common thread. And again, I'm not trying to offend anybody. It's a common thread where you say and ask them, "Do you understand that?" And they go, "Yes," and you find out they didn't understand it, right? <clears throat> and you're you're like, "Oh, I, I said do this, yeah, do this," and and I don't, I don't it's just it's just hard. I don't, it's just hard.
0: And, and similar vein, I'm sure I've told you the story before, but there we this is a project where we had a, uh, there was a team, and it was this was in India that was building something for us, and daily meetings we'd have, and a lot of times they would not. Just no show for the meetings. And we're like, "What in the world was going on? Um, and this would happen, you know, like a couple, I mean, they would miss like maybe one to two of these daily meetings a, a week. And months later, we, we found out that they were having electricity blackouts just throughout the day at certain times. And if it happened during our meeting time, they, they wouldn't be able to get them, But they, didn't, they wouldn't tell us. No one would. Oh, so like yeah. calling blackouts or something? Yeah. And just, you know, they were not truthful about what was happening. But this – did you – let's – I'm going to read this quote she has. So this is literally someone that I guess wrote her about – I guess they're trying to get a job. She says – this person says, Grace, I came to the U.S. in 2012. I have four years of experience that I gained in India and was excited and hopeful to transfer my knowledge over to U.S. and continue my career. When I first started my job hunt, I received no calls for months. Discouraged, my employer who sponsored my visa recommended we add a few U.S. Salesforce projects on my resume – and changed the four years of experience to seven years of experience. Immediately, I started getting calls, interviews, and actually had an opportunity to prove myself. Yes, I admit I struggled in some areas, but at least I was given the chance of landing a project. And this person says, everyone does it, Grace, so it's become the norm for us. We feel it's the only option for us to have a shot at staying in the U.S. And you know what? You know what's um, one, one thing that really is unfortunate about this is this type of thing, this is happening, this is rampant. And this has the effect of when resumes come across a hiring manager's desk and they've got an Indian name, they immediately are going to get a little bit discounted because hmm. the trust level, we, we all know this is happening. And so you're immediately, you're going to, you're going you're gonna, to, that whole resume is
1: going to be more suspect because we know this is happening. And so, that's, so that's, here, 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 on, on that quote, it's unfortunate that you lumped the two because I want to know whether it was the up from four to seven years of experience that got her, the, got her looked at by recruiters or was it the fact that it, that she had salesforce on her resume
0: we don't know because she did both at the same time
1: I know yeah which is unfortunate yeah. however I, I I'm willing to bet that it wasn't the for, it wasn't the change in experience that, that changed that it was the salesforce part, portion of it that changed it yeah it was the fact that that market has strong demand and and because of that you know when you say you have salesforce experience you're l- more likely to get a job
0: yeah, and and again, you know, her, she says at the end that it's, it's it's sad because the people who have who are trying to be honest and do this legitimately, and you have this, you do have a population of H one B consultants who are who are highly skilled and and well educated and very capable, but now th- they're being watered down.
1: Well, they are because, and that goes that comes to my <clears> kind of personal story that I will share, and that is that I, I I know a lot of great developers who are who are from India, like not like. Live they in live Caribbean. in India. They live in India. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, I've had a, I had worked with them, had some great experiences. Uh, we've built some really great things. Um, but I, I feel like what happens is they don't stay developers for long. When when they mm. when they get to a point where they're really good, they don't stay a developer. I, I don't know if that's because of the way they're paid or 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 what, but they move they move up into management. Yeah. Quickly, like fast.
0: Fast, fast. I've seen people go from basically, I think what they were saying they were making about ten dollars no, and what they were getting paid, like right. from their employer, about ten dollars an hour to over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah, <laughs> I, I believe it because I, and 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 this is you know some of these cities in India, are, you know, you'll have a luxurious giant glass you know skyscraper and then uh, dirt roads with you know with dirt, literally dirt poor people. Yeah. It's um. I don't know. It's like a, you know, no, <clears throat> kind of like a no middle class thing, or it's like you've got your, it's such a distinction between the haves and the have nots. Mm. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that, but it's just, it's just an, inter, it's a, you know, it's a cultural, societal thing. Yeah.
1: And, and, well, moving, move. So, so the point of that is that even though I've had these really great experiences and known some really great people, they didn't stay developers long versus here, where like you and I, we enjoy being developers. We're not, Managing a team, we're not doing, we're not seeking to do that. Here's because, common I mean, like, for people
0: to avoid going into management. That's the most common story you hear here, yeah, I mean, right? Exactly.
1: And but there, it's different. You know, it's yeah. it's that rush to get to management because I think that's how they're, I think that's how they get their pay right. bump. Well, yeah. I mean, and it's unfortunate because what happens is that 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 creates this huge void of really skilled developers, yes. uh, basically leaving that to to less yeah. skilled developers working on your projects because the the guys that are good, they've either moved here and gotten a different job or they've moved up into management and they're not developing anymore they're managing the team that, that develops
0: the other thing I've heard about it specifically India is that the turnover among developers is really high because that's how and that's not dissimilar to I think what ha- how it happens here that's how they get pay increases it's very hard to get a, a pay increase especially if you scale up right and you yeah. add some significant you know value it's very unlikely for you to get to your employer to, to recognize that in terms of your your pay and so you're just ha- you know, every six to twelve months, so I'm making things up, and I'm—I think that's kind of the range in. they're in. They're—they're having to—they're moving
1: on. Yeah, and that—that's the same here, though. I mean, if you—it's just honestly like, I, the, the, it, the culture, well, it's not that the, bad The here, culture but, of the past of you know stay with a company for <clears throat> fifty, you know, forty years and collect a pension is gone. That's just that's just <laughs> if you really want to have a career and move on, I I just don't see that as being a viable option. Right. Um, you know, in in my career. I've had to move and change companies to really get a significant bump otherwise you're stuck with the corporate 10% annual you know no the uh, no not ten the um you you'd be lucky to get two percent I don't know yeah, where I don't know where it, this 10 what, comes what from <laughs> what is the um cost of living increase whatever they, they call that that you'll get some kind of annual cost of living increase right. so you're not getting a raise basically uh, you're, you're breaking
0: even every year right it,
1: it, unless <laughs> unless the company decides we're not
0: doing any any raises this year. Then you're going backwards, actually. Yeah. Your, your purchasing power just redu- got reduced. So, um,
1: so a lot of times, you know, moving, taking that jump, taking that risk, you know, putting your resume out there and finding someone who, who values your skill set a little bit more and you just do that over time and you collectively get better and, and, and more better offers. Yeah. Um, so I don't see that being as any different. Yeah.
0: I, I, maybe they're just different degrees. You know, like some, it's worse than, worse in some areas than others. Yeah.
1: So I I don't, I mean, it's, it's hard to kind of talk about this article without covering a lot of things that I'm not comfortable talking about, which is the the kind of what I perceive and it's, it's purely anecdotal and purely from my experiences is it is the, 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 the kind of level of fraud that happens, the, the fake that happens, the, you think you're getting one thing, but you're really getting another thing, or you think you're working with one company, but you're really working with, with, Yep these other guys yep. you know that are sitting in a room somewhere you know and 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 that, that may not be isolated to india it could be it could be any oh, other place certainly not. Where you're i've seen it to. i've seen
0: it you know eastern europe i've seen it ukraine i've seen it russia i mean it's it's that's what makes if it, uh, the, you know i don't know the the people that do um offshoring successfully almost universally say, universally say you you can't just outsource to some company. You've literally got to go and set up your office there. You've got to be flying your teams back and forth because you've got to remain you've got to keep that communication. Keep it, it's not it's not really about holding people, you know, honest to honesty. It's just that you've got to have team interaction. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be cross-pollination that's happening. And, yeah. and that's that's really the only way to find out what's really happening so you can really help the team, whether it's you know, regardless of which direction it's in. And if you're trying to shortchange that because you were seduced by you know fifteen dollars an hour, mm-hmm. and that's what you think it's going to cost you. you. Well, you're you're actually incredibly wrong about that. Oh yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> there's a there's but, a, I mean, a lot but, more that goes that, into that. Is it. a good point because where where I have seen this work really successfully and without a hitch is because they were employees of the same company. Yep. You know the company had a. Office there, they were employees. They had a career path within that company, just like I did, and we were all working and towards the same goal. We were not, we're doing
0: awesome. Not to make this the Martin Fowler show, I feel like we always talk about him or have recently, but he he actually did some really interesting writing on ThoughtWorks' experience because they have a an office in India now, and he had been through some other experiences and he wrote up a, a thing. This goes back years, um, but I'm sure it's all you know. His website's great. He's got the He calls it a Blicky. It's like a clash between a blog and a wiki. <laughs> but yeah, he he did a lot of writing on how they've been able to do offshoring successfully. And that's, I think you have to got ready to make sure, but I think that's what his, what he was saying was, you have, know, you, you have to, you have to own it. Yeah. You can't just throw something over the wall to some other entity that you don't even know very well. You've never met. You don't have any, what, what's your jurisdictional? um what, what's your jurisdiction if something goes wrong? Yeah. Where do you go to sue someone? Where do you go to like, I mean, it's, what are you doing? You don't even know what you're doing. You know, it's like these people that don't know what they're doing and that's why I mean that's why we had such such a pendulum swing back on outsourcing from the
1: early 2000s. Yeah. But I mean it's outsourcing in general in terms of the type of quality and the, the amount of control you have over over what the output is. Uh, game yeah. industry has a big problem with that where um, they would have an IP but they would outsource that IP to some company to build either some version of the game or some spin-off of the game but because it's an outsource, they kind of it's this black hole where they tossed a, the IP and a bunch of money and those guys were supposed to produce something there's plenty of examples where that company that they outsourced to took some of that money allocated par- part of it for that game allocated another part of it for some pet project they wanted to do um and then yeah. ended up you know releasing a crappy game and that's game.
0: basically fraud but it ha- but, i mean it happens just all the time i mean even with the best of intentions i mean ha- having having a some guys and gals do something on a different floor of the building you're in. That's hard enough. Like, no, I've heard I've heard plenty of stories about how when a team got moved from you know, the same floor they were on to a different floor, how that all even just that caused problems. I mean, that when you when you can't just go over and have a quick powwow or something about to solve some quick thing. I mean, they, and you know that's why we do a lot of remote work, and it's just it's really that's one of the key things is to figure out how to use these tools nowadays. To
1: try to break those things down, to try to keep the warmth of communication, whether it's Skype, Slack. Well, it's it's really the the bonding factor that, that happens when you're on the same floor when you're able to walk up to someone and just kinda shoot the Fitbit. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> um it, it and I do that today with, with with people that I work with constantly. You know, we don't if we have a meeting scheduled, our first words aren't, okay, here's the agenda, let's talk about this. No, it's like, you know, how was your day? You know, what's going on? We'll shoot we'll shoot the Fitbit for about you know, probably 10 minutes of that meeting, just talking non-work. Yeah. And then we'll start getting into the work and things, but that, that's, that allows us to be people that allows us to have a conversation and enjoy the people we work with and bond with them. And, you know, it, it allows for that, you know, your, your calls with, with people shouldn't be so sterile. In fact, I'm encouraged when a client comes on and they're kind of just casual about a, converse, a call, you know, like these, these, uh, WebEx and go to meetings, you know, I, you know, when, well, when when it starts out with this agenda and it's very sterile and things, I'm like, all right, this is how this is going to go, I guess. This
0: goes back to the idea of, and I don't know who coined this, but the information radiator, like the fact that you can walk past a, a pod of people and, and look and just see what's on their whiteboard or overhear them or kind of pop in, like that serendipitous learning. It's, you're going to you're going to discover things and learn things and have all these little little interesting things that actually find them find their ways into what people are working on and improve their work that you would just wouldn't have if if you don't have that and again, the like the remote thing that's that's all about doing things to try to replicate those information radiators it's it never is. it's never going
1: to be as good as everyone in the same area but true but could, the, i mean the other thing it does is it allows you to when, when you have that kind of candid relationship with someone that you're working closely with is you're able to kind of be a little bit more honest about what's going on you can you can say you know what this really frustrates me or the way this person did this on the, on our team kind of pissed me off. I felt this way. And it at least allows you this, this mechanism to kind of air this out. You're not this alone in this. You can, you can air these things up and with people listening, they can either temper you, temper you or validate you. And you can kind of start formulating this plan of how you're going to deal with this situation.
0: Yep. <clears throat> John, we need to get to your quiz. Yes. All right. I'm ready. overdue. And I, we are, <laughs> we are overdue. Oh wait, I got, I got to find it a quiz I, I don't know, I have quiz. to do quiz. oh here we go uh oh my name is Craig D- I guess my oh I guess ad's going on here some autoplays lovely alright and for this I th- think it's important that we go ahead and off to feel quiz music John <laughs> like I said there's I don't think there's any right or wrong answers to these. I'm kind of just going to bounce these off of you. All right. This is about auditing your Salesforce system. This is from, again, another one from CIO Magazine. Wow. CIO, uh, multiple appearances in the Good Days for a show today. Oh, nice. All right. <clears throat> True or false? At least 10% of an object's custom fields should be formulas or roll-ups. Should be. Should be. False he thinks they should he says too often code or child objects are used instead of clever formulas code means cost and maintenance spurious objects mean UI and reporting ugliness which means even more code that's wrong I disagree (laughs) yeah I do too alright next one no object should have more than a handful of validation rules and ideally zero true I agree with that one why explain yourself why how do you keep data
1: integrity if you don't have rules on what can go into a field? Well, I agree on the standpoint that it should be for data integrity, but ideally that would be minimal. You know, your system is designed so that it already kind of enforces that at the lower level. Like this field is required and always required. But when you start adding validation rules to say something is required, now you're injecting business process into your data model. And so I disagree with that. Well, no, what if you say, Oh, if, this, if you put something in this field, then you have to put something in this field. Yes. How do you do that? Well, that's a validation rule Okay, but that's process well, how, and I'd like to minimize the amount of process that the system how is that process. Forcing. that's just a basic constraint it's not really a process it's a basic constraint if you say that if that's true if it's, as, if it's as simplistic as that but the way people tend to use it is when it's this that means that we're in this process mode and you have to have this 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 and this this for that process and to me that's injecting process into the system which I'm not a fan of well he says that
0: the problem is is It prevents users from saving incomplete pages. Yes, that's
1: what it's supposed to do. Yes, it does, but it also forces people to get around the system by entering dummy data.
0: Right. Well Crap data. Then you have a talk with those people. Don't enforce
1: your process with the system. How do you enforce the system do what it does? And enforce your process at a higher level. What what do you mean a higher level? What higher level? Trusting people to do what they're supposed to
0: do. That's why you have a system.
1: No, the system's there to collect data.
0: Yeah, but if, it, if it's data communication, if it's garbage in, garbage out. If you let like if you let people put garbage in, they will. All right, hire better people next. <laughs> manual <laughs> not hire, hire manual system. process validators. Okay, no object should have more than a handful
1: of fields with constraints such as required or unique value. A hand, well, that depends. I would say true, but it really depends on how many integrations you have. That's the only reason I, I see, see for his
0: that. logic is the same, actually. He just people shouldn't it shouldn't be hard to enter a, a record you, sh- you shouldn't have to be required to enter more than you know, one or two fields I guess you shouldn't you shouldn't okay. it should
1: be easy to enter a record yeah, yes okay. yeah. I, th- I think it's, minimal amount it, of effort, it all comes down to balance it all comes
0: down to you gotta balance the, the needs of right people versus data integrity alright next true or false no UI page aka page layout <laughs> Should have more than five required fields. I feel like he is repeating himself. What do you say to that, John?
1: Yeah, false. As many as you need. Required fields? <laughs> oh, wow. I just want to wow. be different. No, We're I'm really saying, consistent no, true, here. Okay. True. True or false? No object
0: should have more than 10 record types unless there's an incredibly strong reason for it. And the number of user profiles should be less than 5% of the total user count. I'd cut that's, that back down. To that's five. two
1: completely different things. How does he put those in one? I don't know. Let's let's cover the record type thing. I think. How does
0: a re- how does an object have ten record types? It happens. That just means you're using a god object.
1: Yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, I'm not a fan of having way, that many record types. No, I'm not a fan of having ten. Uh, four maybe. Now what? Now his factor of users
0: to profiles interesting. So he's saying if you have a hundred users in your system, you should have no more than five profiles.
1: Don't have everyone in a different profile, basically. Which, no, that, that's kind of hard to say in well pants.
0: profiles are hard to maintain so I, th- I think the to me the general rule is like have is j- no more than the number of profiles you actually really need because they're hard to maintain and they're yeah. hard to test
1: they
0: are profiles are actually really hard to test um, okay true or false the system should have less than 10% unused objects and less than 25% unused fields I'm talking about historical objects that have no
1: longer hold data I guess I, I guess. I mean if if you if there's a field there and you don't need it anymore, archive it and get rid of it, but it doesn't matter. It's it's someone else's computer. Who cares? <laughs> All right. True
0: or false. The number of reports should be less than the number of users. No. It's false. really arbitrary. I mean it what is. if you have three users? You could I need ten reports, that's totally yeah. reasonable. It comes with ten reports. I know. Exactly. It comes <laughs> with like probably more than that. <laughs> Okay, for any object, there should, should should not be a mix of code, workflows, and flows. Oh, true. I'll say this right now. Listen, ask Jeremy, and the answer is true. False. It's true. False. So my rule is, okay, user workflows and field updates. That's fine. But as soon as we have to start doing triggers on that same object, I'm moving all those workflows into a trigger.
1: Yeah. yeah. False. I write better software than you do Right Dad. tool for the right job, Jeremy. Right tool for the right job. Uh,
0: spreading your stuff around all those different areas makes everything a lot harder. And I've saved clients a lot of time and money by simplifying things into triggers that were spread all over the place. Okay. (laughs) Sure or (laughs) false? Apex code test methods should be at least 75% of the size of the code under test. Wow. This is, talk about stupid metrics. What a stupid metric. That question's dumb because it doesn't matter. You don't get a choice. It's still, he still does the same thing about, I mean, you. Could, okay, you can accomplish his stupid rule. This is a problem with stupid, stupid metric like this. Your developers will accomplish that rule while still having shit bit assertions and not actually having meaningful tests. They don't have to have any assertions. That's true, they don't. My point. Okay, true or false. For any one object, there shouldn't be more than one trigger and it should be small, ideally just one.
1: Ideally one trigger. I used to be of the mindset of splitting the before and after into two triggers, um, but now I'm just back down to one.
0: I think. Well, and I, I don't know what his reasoning is, but yeah, if you have one trigger, then you can control all the execution, the order of what that trigger can, what that trigger does. Yeah. Except packages that install their own triggers. That's yes. that's always the. <laughs> that's true. The asterisk there. Okay. Final one, John. True or false? Classes can be as big as you want. But individual methods should fit in a single screen. Huh?
1: That's, I mean, well, technically...
0: I'm sorry, John. I'm sorry. That is... That is... This guy... Don't ever listen to this guy. (laughs) Whoever this is. (laughs) Classes should not be as big as you want.
1: Well, technically, they, they can't be. Because... Technically, there's a limit on the megabyte size uh, of your class. If
0: you listen, if you even approach ten percent of that size, <laughs> you need to find a different business to get in.
1: But no, I think everything should be very small and simple as, as possible. Right. However, I have written some pretty big classes. Well, and and of this, it wasn't by design; this, it just happened. This comes with a caveat that it is Salesforce, and there's a global namespace, yeah. so people don't want to create a million classes. Yeah. But I, I'll, I will inject, you know, subclasses directly or internal classes directly into it, and that bloats huh? the and, and you have to remember that a class
0: is in itself a namespace right that's so all your all your fields and properties and methods in a class they're sharing that class's namespace uh-huh. and Sometimes. any 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 field you have that, and this is a general software engineering rule like the scope you want to keep the scope of things as small as possible right. like a, a variable scope you know d- declare it only right before it's needed and it should things should have the smallest scope possible yep. in fact and this gets bent into naming the bigger the scope is for a certain identifier, whether it's a method or a, a, a property or a, a field or something, the bigger the scope is the more, the longer and more descriptive that name should be because it's going to be used in a places that are far away from where it was declared. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you have a really tight for loop, for loop, okay, fine, an I is fine or whatever, right? Right. But if you know if you've got a a field in a class that has two thousand lines in it, you need to name those fields really well and name your methods really well. Because there's going to be a lot of methods. Hopefully, there's a lot of methods in that class if it's that big. Yeah, right. Uh, all right, John. That's it. Let's see if I can know this thing professionally. I've just. I've got to get better. A better tool here. VLC has just got too many issues. It's not cutting it. No. My sandboard app is not supported anymore.
1: Our quality is suffering. (laughs) I know.
0: Uh, We're going to have to start offering refunds for (laughs) (laughs) people. Real quick, so the LinkedIn, Microsoft thing is fully approved now. So Benioff did not get what he wanted. Microsoft did offer concessions. It's funny, and Salesforce likes to point that out, but they had nothing to do with LinkedIn or its data. It had everything to do with um, not like, uh, not preventing people from doing like Microsoft add-ins and not forcing people to put like Office on computers, new computers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with LinkedIn's data. They made no concessions that I could see around LinkedIn data. Hmm. But Salesforce is still going to be on the on the on the what's the what's the word on the tear on the on the rampage about this. It's not going away. It's done. Um, we have one piece of business. Do you are you do you have any other? I mean, we're.
1: I have one thing. Okay. But you got to do that. Okay. Uh, it's a review that we haven't read. Oh, good. Yet, and it was from a couple weeks ago. We, so I so, apologize. I've, I mean, I've, I've kind of, you know, I wonder
0: if people still like us or not because we don't get any reviews anymore. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's because we haven't been reading them. That could be too. That's your job, John.
1: Well, I, I had it on here, <laughs> and they get I get emailed to you. We've we've been having <laughs> these like marathon sessions, and by the time we get to to the where I want to put, do them. I forget. <laughs> We're either t- too tired or too drunk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, Easy for you to it's, say. It's, 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 <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so this one's from Kedar Joshi. Oh, that's a, a new uh, Slack member.
0: I, I recognize says, the name.
1: And this was this was from a couple weeks. This was back in November, so mid-November. So I apologize oh, wow. for not getting to it. John, speaking but, of Slack, you're, you're slacking. I'm slacking. Uh, he says, I thoroughly enjoy listening to John and Jeremy talk, not just about Salesforce, but a wide variety of other interesting topics. The podcast is a must for anyone, especially developers who are in the Salesforce ecosystem. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah.
0: The reviews really help. So if there's anything that you've ever, you know, we don't, that you've wanted to do to to help us or whatever, something easy, just go leave a review in iTunes. Or if you have a Google thing or an Android thing that I don't understand about, there's some review. Because these things, you know, they, 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 I think they cause people to uh, they, they show up better in search results and you get floated to the rankings higher. And if you use Overcast, I'll forget to click the recommend. On each episode, click that recommend button. You have to hit the little I, the little, and it pops up a thing, a, a sheet, uh-huh. and you can click the heart recommend button. I don't know what that does, but it's got to be something good. Oh, so you got to heart it. Well, it says, it's got a heart, but it also says recommend right there. Okay. but You have to click the little I, the little info thing to pop open that dialogue that gives you that recommend option. So all those things help us. So everything that you guys can do to help us is very much appreciated. Speaking of the Slack, we have probably 95% of the people that listen to this show are not in our Slack community. And <laughs> you probably should be. If you're still listening to this, almost two hours in now, come join our Slack community. We're, we're very friendly. We are. We're very um, nice. We have a, a huge range of people from beginner admins to some of the smartest developers I think I probably know. That's not, I'm not talking about you, John. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. I thought you were talking about me. I was getting excited. Um, and so, John, how do you sign up for our Slack? How do you get there? Is you always it, ask me that. I always forget. Maybe that's why I'm asking you. I need you to remember this. Because there's something www. else you're in charge of.
1: Do we have to say www I anymore know. these
0: days? Don't ask me. I didn't set up our website. Do you, even, do you have to do it? No. Okay.
1: You just do Good Day Sir okay. Podcast. Okay. Well, let's hear it. GoodDaySirPodcast.com forward slash community. Or just go to GoodDaySirPodcast.com and there's community in the menu. Where you can enter your email address, and uh, it'll send me a notification, and I will manually (laughs) add you to the Slack community.
0: And we don't ask for anything else; it's just email address. Yeah, it's just email address. So this is very low. We have no privacy policy. Yeah, (laughs) because we don't have any data. So, (laughs) all right. No, we don't. Oh, one last thing, and one. (laughs) This is my, and one more thing. We need to discuss a, speaking of the Slack channel, this idea of having another channel for, I mean, do we want to start adding other channels now?
1: Oh, that's right, yeah.
0: Because Jody M asked us to create a channel, I think for code type stuff. Right. Code not clicks.
1: Yeah, because I, th- I think as the discussion goes, it kind of gets hard to keep track of. I mean, I just i want to get your sense on
0: Okay, we didn't. We started out with one channel because we didn't know if any, anyone even would even join this Slack. And if there's just like fifteen people, then you obviously don't need multiple channels. It just spreads things to, way too thin. Right. And the question is now: Do we have enough activity that if we add another channel or two, that we're not spreading things too thin? Right.
1: But plus, the other thing is: is if you're only monitoring the general, then you have this other one that you got to monitor, and you know it, it. It becomes work. It does. Yeah. To try to manage that. Yeah. Um, however. You know, there are times where I wish I could kind of go back to specific conversations and it would kind of help to, it would kind of help that they're organized a little bit. And I think people feel bad about posting like big code snippets or asking
0: these real detailed questions Mm -hmm. in the general channel. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't know, are you on board with adding a code, like a a, a tech, more technical or like a code not clicks? And what do we call it? Is that a good name for it? Code not clicks?
1: I I I, kind of like that too.
0: (laughs) So, I think, I mean, I didn't make that. Someone else came up with that.
1: I don't know who that was, but. Um, I, I am okay with it on a trial basis. How about we okay put it on probation? See how it does? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that.
0: All right. Meeting
1: adjourned.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't have a gavel. All right, John, I'm done. All right. Sick of forking me. I'm going to go home. Cook some steak? Bye.
1: No, I don't know. It's kind of late now. No. Oh. I can't, I won't be able to see them. Oh, dude, it gets dark at like 430. You had no chance. I know. I'll, I'll, I'll have my light on it. Yeah. Your little grill light. Yeah. No, I have a, a really high, um, I have this like super awesome LED flashlight. You should get one
0: of those headband lights too.
1: No, the, the, the light on it doesn't work as well for some reason. Really? Yeah. All right. So, and, Whatever works. And, and to that, I say good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day,
0: sir.